This is another Red FM podcast. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, for more podcasts, check out redextra.ie. It's full of great Red FM content. And a very good morning to you at uh, coming up on nine minutes past nine. Mick Mulcahy in for the final week before Neil's return next Monday morning. Yes, summer's on the way, says the mail. I know we've been saying it. I know we said the uh, the high pressure would arrive. It's kind of here. But Met Aaron are saying take out the barbecue as the Azores high brings temperatures or will bring temperatures to 24 degrees. We've been given permission to take the barbecue out. Thousands of people are barbecuing already. Uh, Ireland can finally expect some sunny weather next weekend. Thanks to the Azores High, the high pressure area, which originates in the Azores off the coast of Africa, looks set to move towards the country in the second half of this week, bringing with it temperatures in the low to mid 20s. Barbecues can be taken out. Met Aaron forecaster Paul Down said as the week goes on, temperatures will get into the low 20s, so slightly above average for the time of year. Thursday, it will really heat up and you're getting up to 23 degrees, possibly even 24 degrees here in Cork. Uh, but there's a hint that early next week, temperatures might get above 25 degrees. Uh, in the southeast of the country. Let's all move to Wexford. But that is a long way out at the moment, and that's based on the high pressure staying uh, in for the early days of next week. It could stick there throughout next week, but there are some hints that there could be a front from the northwest pushing it out of the way. Elton says his farewell to Cork. The weather was kind uh, to the concert goers as well. There was a huge break in uh, in the rain that was very heavy earlier in the afternoon. Fifteen years on from his first performance in Cork City's uh, music legend, Sir Elton John returned on Friday night for his last ever show there. And what a night it was, the 236th show of the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, which began in 2018. After being delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic, it will finish next year. That's a long, long tour. It's intended to be Elton John's final tour, consisting of more than 300 concerts worldwide. A taxing schedule, it's uh, no doubt. But the 75-year-old star was the picture of exuberance when he took to the stage to tumultuous applause in Parky Kiev just after 8pm. We're, uh, we're so happy to be here, he said. We've been looking forward to coming to Ireland and the weather's clearing up. We're so lucky. Uh, we're getting to the end of the European outside shows. Two more to do after tonight, so we're going to make this one count. And apparently, yes, he did deliver. Everybody happy there. Uh, we have woman had to bring distressed son to uh, ED. Uh, the CAMH fails child, uh, says the Echo Front page today. A Cork mother has said that a recent experience at a hospital emergency department completely destroyed any faith she had in the child and adolescent mental health services, CAMHS. Anne was left with no option but to bring her son to the Mercy Hospital uh, M-U-H-E-D emergency department recently following a difficult time at home. He was extremely agitated, hysterically uh, crying and communicating that he wanted to die. She said her son ha- was being weaned off one medication onto another and there were also changes in his routine. Uh, after some time she worsened uh, and the uh, CAMHS apparently offered an appointment on the Friday the next day which Anne says she could not wait for. She was then told A&E was the only option. Full story in today's Echo. Welfare and fuel to be targeted in early budget, says the front of the examiner. The cabinet is set to spend an extra two billion euro, an extra two billion in budget 2023, which we've now confirmed, or everybody believes anyway, will be September 27th. Daniel McConnell, the examiner's political editor, reporting extending fuel rebates beyond budget day, another round of the 200 euro energy credit and an autumn welfare bonus will be part of the 6.7 billion budget package 
to be approved in principle today. We're going to hear details of that uh, this afternoon as well. The increase in spending is up from $4.7 billion. That was promised in April, and it comes as the government struggles to offset runaway inflation and rising prices. The extra $2 billion, made up of $1.5 billion on spending and a half a billion on tax cuts, will form the basis of the summer economic statement to be announced today. But much of that money will be needed simply to stand still. So there's always, I suppose, people giving out that the government don't act fast enough when it comes to alleviating or helping to alleviate poverty and stressful situations financially. Um, And it's all very well that they're uh, proposing tax cuts. Why don't they just index link the uh, uh, PAYE bans uh, to reflect or try to follow and reflect inflation. That would be an almost immediate help next week in people's pay packets. And we're hoping to get some uh, senior government uh, members, at least one, if we can. We're trying a few and uh, see if we can get them on the air with us uh, this week. Uh, while some ministerial sources say there's a lot of fiscal space or additional revenues allowing much greater scope to help struggling families, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue and Public Expenditure Minister Michael McGrath will be seeking to dampen down expectations at Cabinet with a sobering assessment of the nation's finances. This, senior sources have said, is due to record employment and rising incomes. And that's a sobering assessment. Record employment and rising incomes should give a very positive outlook, I suppose. But under significant political pressure to address the cost-of-living crisis, the Cabinet will meet for an extraordinary meeting to approve its summer economic statement. This is going to set out the budget day parameters when it's delivered in the last week of September. Christmas bonus in autumn, though, says the Mirror front page. Pensioners and those on benefits could be in for an early Christmas with an extra week's welfare payment in autumn. The government is considering handing out the traditional festive bonus to 1.4 million people at the end of summer as the price of... Pretty much everything skyrockets. It's to help the ease to ease the cost of living crisis and will not affect the usual Christmas bonus, which will be paid again in December. There could be a 10 euro rise in benefits, but John McHale, professor of economics at NUIG, said if they really want to protect people, they have to go further than that. Christmas could come early, though, uh, for many of our pensioners and those on social welfare. Budget measures, by the way, are expected to include significant increases in core social welfare payments and childcare subsidies, uh, the indexation of the tax bans to account for the rise in inflation. Oh, there's my suggestion. I've just said, it, said that about a minute ago. Uh, and there it is in the papers, the indexation of the tax bans. But they could do that now. They don't need to wait until September uh, to do that. And that would give an almost immediate help to everybody in need, especially the lower paid. Uh, on the Star's front page, it's Red Eye to Roll. The first batch of troops begin airport security training today. It's a 6 a.m. start, says one of the bullet points, and 500-kilometer trek, but there's no deal on pay. Uh, soldiers are being ordered on a round trip of more than 500 kilometres to work as security at Dublin Airport. It's emerged. The Star has learned 40 soldiers from the 28th Infantry Battalion based at Finner Camp in County Donegal are in Dublin today for special training before being deployed to the crisis-ridden airport. They leave Donegal at 6am for a 520 kilometre round trip between their Ballyshannon Camp and Dublin for the two-day training course on how to act as security at the nation's main airport. And once the government gives the nod, 
They will then be deployed from Donegal to spend up to a week at a time at the airport. Let's hope hope they can do some sort of a deal uh, on getting fairly compensated for that. Several killed in Mall Gun Rampage, also says the Star today. Danish cops arrest suspect in mass shooting. Several people have been killed in the shooting at a shopping centre in Denmark's capital, Copenhagen. Uh, Police have confirmed. Police say they were present at Fields Mall after receiving reports of shootings, while onlookers reported people being killed with a semi-automatic weapon. Several people were reportedly hit by gunshots as panic spread through the crowd while shoppers were evacuated. One eyewitness says shooting in a shopping centre next to venue. Fatalities, semi-automatic, were about 100 metres away. Out now and away and safe. Imagine sending such a stressful message uh, in the midst of a shooting, but there you go. Prepare for new COVID wave every few months, says the Mirror. The waves of COVID-19 can be expected every few months, an expert in virology has warned. Dr. Jared Barry, a professor at UCD, has also said a new variant, which has emerged in India, is likely to hit us around September or October. The virus is not going to be seasonal like the flu, which disappears during the summer months. His comments come amid a further rise in the number of people with the bug in hospital. Yesterday, there were 826 patients with the virus, an increase of 30 from the same time on Saturday. It compares with 746 people last Sunday. The figure has risen by 30% in two weeks, and it has more than doubled from three weeks ago. And yet they are standing down, drastically standing down, the uh, contact tracing departments across the country. Uh, In the Echo, calls for one-way system to be trialled on Blarney Street. Renewed calls have been made for a one-way system to be trialled and for further traffic calming measures to be put in place along Blarney Street. It comes as last month's CCTV footage widely shared on social media showed a car speeding down the street, ostensibly the longest street in the country, and colliding with several parked vehicles. So there's a call for a one-way system to be trialled on Blarney Street. And a couple of more. A baby bat colony closes an AIB branch. Uh, Louise Walsh reporting uh, almost a 104-week-old bat pups, which temporarily closed the bank in Cork, have been reunited with their mothers. The AIB branch in Blarney was closed to the public on Tuesday after staff noticed the tiny baby bats and called in the Bat Rehabilitation Ireland Centre to deal with the infestation as uh, in the interim, customers were diverted to other nearby bank branches. Susan Kerwin of the Bat Rehabilitation Centre, Ireland's first dedicated hospital to bats, rescued 93 tiny bats up to Thursday, but expected there would be more to be found in the roof space of the old building. What is the procedure? What is the protocol if you find a bat in your bedroom or in your house? What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to lock it in and call um, people like Susan Kerwin at the Bat Rehabilitation Centre? Do you try to get it out? Do you leave it alone? Uh, is it illegal uh, to try to capture the bat and free it? I don't know. Uh, if anyone can shed any light on that, please call us 0818 104 106. Uh, now, we'll cover this later in the programme, but there's a bid to erect uh, a Michael Collins statue in Cork City. Efforts to erect a statue of Michael Collins in Cork City gathering pace as the 100th anniversary of his assassination approaches. And more on that a little later on. Taxi in Times says the mirror an appalling smell and a driver's refusal to allow a guide dog in his cab were among hundreds of complaints received by the taxi regulator in the past eight months. The largest number of complaints received by the NTA, the National Transport Authority, to date this year related to overcharging and other matters relating to fares while drivers failing to wear face coverings was also a recurring issue. Finally, a bitter pill to swallow. A one euro tablet that can cure a hangover. 
Uh, a hangover-busting pill leaving drinkers feeling fresh the next day is coming on the market. It works by reducing alcohol absorbed by the body, but because uh, some gets through, drinkers still enjoy a buzz. Miracle, is that kind of on Miracle? M-Y-R-K-L. Miracle. It's a miracle. Miracle tablets cost thirty-four eighty for 30 pills and are taken two at a time an hour before drinking. The Journal Nutrition and Metabolic Insights reported that in test subjects had 70% less alcohol in their blood an hour after two vodkas, uh, which may have helped the boozers to hit uh, the 2009 comedy The Hangover. Um, so you, you go out drinking and this uh, pill kind of stops you from getting drunk but does uh, do away with the, with the hangover as well. Those are the morning papers. It's 21 minutes past nine. Good morning. Cork's number one talk show. The Neil Prendeville Show on Red FM. Now then, uh, let me get to a couple of texts before we take our first caller because we have acres and acres of texts coming through, especially on our Besborough topic. Uh, and guess who was in government when these crimes were committed, says a texture. Make that lady has an absolutely amazing story and an incredible way of speaking and telling it. Uh, that was Mary Donovan, I think. It's absolutely disgraceful what happened to all these women and babies in these days and nobody answerable. What an absolute disgrace the church has allowed this to happen and wouldn't do anything to help. Listening to this lady is absolutely heartbreaking for all her hardship. Her determination is inspirational. I hope Mary gets the justice they all deserve. What happened in Besborough and elsewhere was child trafficking, but as it was the church who did it, it's not called that. Why? Says Pat. Just a couple more and we'll go to our phone lines. Uh, if any citizen in any country was found to have buried their own baby in the back garden, the ground would be a crime scene and the parents punished for doing what they did. Yet the church stroke government just apologise and push it away. And yet no nun was ever questioned in any of these homes, says Anthony. And uh, one final one. The HSC is a Frankenstein-esque monster created by the government. It's now out of control. The only way to deal with monsters is to drive a stake through its heart. And so says Pa. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Derek Bly joins me on line one. Thanks for holding, Derek. How are you? Mick, how are you getting on? Very good. Now, you were in touch with us last week about a project in Mitchellstown, and it's uh, DIY SOS, the Big Build Ireland, is returning to Cork for a very special two-part episode based in Kingston College in Mitchellstown. Now, this has uh, a very, a very important, heartfelt feel to it. It's an incredibly special build, uh, and the producers were excited to be able to announce a mammoth endeavour. You're involved in this, are you? Well, I, I was going to be involved in it. Uh, I had to withdraw my name there last week. Okay. Uh, from it. Um, what, what was your understanding, got, and, and why were you in, why were you prepared to get involved? When I got involved, first Mick, um, uh, I was led to believe that the project was for housing homeless people. Um, uh, some Ukrainian, but also some Irish. Irish. Yeah. Yeah also homeless Irish, as um, what they wanted was, they wanted trade people yes. to gear up, right, and go in for about 10 days and do up eight houses um, in um, the King's College area of Mitchellstown. Beautiful houses, no may I add, uh, but in need of renovation. Um, but as the weeks went on, I learned that no Irish are being put up in the houses. It's strictly for Ukrainians. 
And even if they wanted the whole Irish, they can't because the grants they're getting from the EU uh, will only allow the whole Ukrainian people. Okay, now these, these houses are long-standing, uh, if that's not yeah. a pun. They're, they're, they've yeah. been housing... 1760, I believe. Yeah, 1761 is the number I've here, but they've oh, been okay. housing people okay. in need, Close. you know, for, for over uh, 250 years. Kingston College, a community of 31 small terraced houses. They're beautiful houses, grouped around, yeah. around a large square with a chapel. Uh, the chapel, of course, is the central focus, as it would have been back then. And they've kind of been in trust since the mid-18th century, uh, and they're in trust to yep. three Church of Ireland bishops who've been maintaining yep. them via a fund. So what you're saying is even if they wanted to give 50-50 to Irish and Ukrainian, they're precluded because of the funding conditions. The one foundation, which was founded by Oron Bono and um, another uh, chap, um, gave a donation of €200,000 to uh, the trust but only on condition that uh, the houses be used to house Ukrainian refugees only. Now, I have no problem with Ukrainian refugees. I have no problem with the Ukrainian war. But we've got a mini war going on in this country uh, with over a decade. We've got 10,000 homeless Irish in this country. We've got hundreds of thousands of Irish people waiting on the council list for homes. A sister of mine has been on the housing list for over um, 12 years now at this stage. She's got children, two young kids, right? And for us uh, to muster uh, the means uh, to bring in an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees at this time makes absolutely no sense to me and that's why I had to withdraw my name from the uh, project. It was a, it was a, it was a voluntary project. May I ask? I was I was willing to go in for the ten days and work for free. Uh, for free, me and a few lads. But when we heard that no Irish allowed, then we said we uh, we had to we had to withdraw. And may I add as well, Mick? This isn't just happening in Mitchellstown. This is happening up and down the length and breadth of the country. Uh, there's a hotel in Formoy, a beautiful hotel. I've, I've went in there many times myself over the years. I've had, I've had dinner in there with my family. Um, that hotel's been done up at the moment, and it's strictly for Ukrainian refugees. Um, that hotel's been sitting idle for the last you know, four or five years, right? Why couldn't the government um, put a few bob together, then uh, do it up, right, and put homeless into it? Who's who's footing the bill for the hotel renovation, do you know? The EU again. The EU, from what I hear, I spoke to one of the lads doing some work on the, the hotel, and I spoke to some locals in the area, and they all confirmed that it's EU money. So if the, if the EU has, and I'm going to take a guess at this, hundreds of millions of euro, right, when you factor in all the properties around the country, to uh, uh, do up to a very high standard, may I add, um, accommodation for strictly Ukrainian refugees, 
Why couldn't they help our own people in the last few years? Yeah, that's that's a very valid position, and and you know it's it's going to polarize opinion uh, because some people will say, you know, something the, the war in Ukraine is not going to last forever. These people will be repatriated to their home country, uh, and we will, as a benefit, have many hundreds, if not thousands, of properties uh, that will come become available for uh, the Irish homeless. But I do take your point. If it was fifty, will 50, they be repatriated, Dominic? Will they be repatriated? But when the Ukrainians this move home. You reckon yeah, Ukrainians well, will they, stay? Well, uh, in the 2015 uh, Syrian refugee wave, we took in tens of thousands of people. And to date, a minuscule amount of those people have returned home, even though the Syrian war has, is, is long over. There may be some skirmishes, uh, some small conflicts, the, the president of Syria actually came out a few years ago and he called for his people to return, okay? But, you know, when you, when you bring people in uh, from countries with a lower standard of living, right, and you, you put them up in another country with a higher standard of living, um, you know, you, may, you make no incentive to leave. So going by the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis... If that is anything to go by, you know, we can't expect many of these people to ever return to Ukraine. Uh, look, we've tried to contact the hotel in question. We've tried contacting them on, uh, on phone and by email. Uh, they've bounced back. Uh, the general consensus is the hotel is closed. If you were, yeah. if you were to be told that the, uh, the renovations uh, in this proposed DIY SOS program were going to be 50-50, Irish homeless yep. and Ukrainian refugees, would that be more palatable? Would that be acceptable? Perhaps. 100%. I'm working on a job now at the moment. I gather up my tools and I would head down there if it was to be used for even 50%. But I spoke to um, the, the Anglican Church last week, the Protestant Church. Um, they're the ones uh, that own the property. And they said to me, they said, we can't even entertain um, housing non-Ukrainians. The donations we've received are only for Ukrainian people. So that's when I need to pull my name. Mm. Now this is an RT production, or it's uh, if not an RT production, it's uh, you know it's a, it's subbed out mm-hmm. to a production company, perhaps. Uh, but we've contacted yeah. RT. They've told us to contact the Anglican Church. Uh, so yep. we're currently awaiting a response from them. Um, mm. So uh, maybe the Bishop of Cork, Cloyne and Ross, Dr. Paul, Paul Colton, if we can get him, uh, can shed some more light. Uh, it was he and Diocesan Secretary Billy Skews who, having watched the plight of the Ukrainian yep. people, decided to put out an appeal to try and raise money to do up eight or, or so vacant houses to house refugees and their families. But in the case of, mm. of, of the Bishop here, uh, is it a case now you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't? Um... No, look, uh, 60% of Irish people want a cap put right, on the numbers of people coming in from Ukraine. It, the, the overwhelming majority of people that you speak to on the street, um, they believe it's a bad idea to bring an unlimited number. Uh, the Housing Minister, Darrell O'Brien, said last week, uh, he spoke to an independent TD, Carol Nolan, and he told her, that there is absolutely no way the government will entertain putting a cap 
on refugees. And we're a small country but, with a relatively small population. Uh, you know, we, compared we to the size, for instance, and the population of the UK. Yeah. But, you know, we're get, yeah, and uh, how many refugees have the UK taken? Uh, inordinately less as a, as, a, as a percentage of per head of capita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, in my opinion, is the smart way to go about it. Well, that's one but of the reasons they wanted Brexit, Derek, is to, is to control their borders and have that, uh, you know, enforced cap. Um, right. I, I'm all for bringing in Ukrainian refugees and giving whatever help we can as a nation. Um, but unlimited... At the of our own people. Unlimited can't work. Yeah, exactly. It can't, it can't work. It's, it's, like, it's too broad a number... It's far too broad of a number, um, uh, especially when we've got 10,000 of our own people without homes. We, we had 115 people die on the streets of Dublin last year. That's one city. That's our capital city. That's one city, right? I don't have the figures for the rest of the country. If those people had a roof over their head, Right? And a warm meal inside in their belly, how many of those would still be alive today? You know? Mm. We, 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 need, we need to draw the line. And, and maybe we need our own form of Brexit here because we seem to have no say right, in the numbers that the EU uh, declares that we take into this country. Um, since January and up to last month, the Irish state issued 135,000 PPS numbers. Uh, 35,000 of those went to Ukrainians. 100,000 PPS numbers, were, 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 non-Ukrainian PPS numbers were issued. How many of those were uh, new births? Somewhere in the region of 25,000, I believe. So on, on the other side, though, yeah. and, and kind of going against what you were saying about them not returning, in total over 2.5 million Ukrainians uh, who left their mm. country have returned to their home since the war started. The Irish Times okay. reported that uh, tens of thousands have made the decision to return to Ukraine and rebuild their lives despite the uncertainty of war. Uh, so a lot of them are going back, but there's still a lot of them coming this way. Yeah, well, you know, I hope they do return. I have no, nothing against Ukrainians. I actually like Ukrainian people. I lived in Canada for 10 years, and there's a huge Ukrainian community over there. They're, uh, they're hardworking. They have good values. They have similar values to our own. But at the end of the day, Mick, we, uh, we have a crisis here of our own. We have a major housing crisis, even before that war started. We, we've got a fuel crisis, we've got a food crisis, we've got an inflation crisis. We're heading into a very, very dark period. We're definitely heading into a very, very dark winter because now we are, yeah. we're, we're now, if you've seen some of the weekend reports in the papers, we are now dependent on, uh, on Britain to keep gas supplies yeah. going with us through the winter because we don't have and, our own liquefied natural gas. Yeah. Uh, so and where that, did that get us before? I know, but you know? We're, we're, we're now depending on a country, let's, let's be honest, that at the moment relations are a little bit frosty with uh, to, yeah. to supply us with gas because we don't have enough uh, renewables uh, to power the country if the wind doesn't blow. Now, if it blows hard and it does in the winter, we might get through. But we're, we're looking at a, a winter of possible uh, energy cuts, gas cuts and possible power outages. 
Which brings me to the point, which brings me to the point, the, uh, the leader of the Green Party up in Dublin, Eamon Ryan, who in my opinion, uh, does, he does not have a functioning brain, right? he decided at this uh, time... That's very unfair. To, to, no, no, he decided to ban harvesting and sale of turf. We've survived uh, cutting and burning turf in this country for thousands of years, right? And now when we're facing into a bleak winter, as you said yourself, he decides to ban the sale of it. Um, people living in the city, that won't make much of a difference to them. But it's rural Ireland is going to suffer, and it's going to suffer hard this winter, right, because of that ban. No, it okay. won't stop me from buying turf. I'm going to continue to buy turf. I don't, if, they, if they want to put me in prison right, for keeping my family warm, then so be it. But, but uh, uh, the ban will uh, stop a percentage of the population uh, from buying turf, right? And that's going to, have a, it's going to have a major impact on them. But anyway, back to the Ukraine issue. Uh, you know, we, we can't, we can't take an unlimited number. Yeah. Okay. Unlimited, unlimited. That's untenable. It just cannot be unlimited. Kieran, good morning. Morning, mate. How are you? Very good. You take exception to what, uh, some of what Derek is saying? I do. I do. Um, I suppose, look, first of all, I think, you know, the fact that he had volunteered to, to, um, to do some, um, work to improve society has to be commended. But I think uh, the point he's making that he's entitled to withdraw his volunteerism, that's fine. But I think the reason that he's given, and pause, I'm sorry, um, we're in an emergency. We're in an emergency. I mean, yes, we're in multiple emergencies, but there's a bigger emergency. The Ukrainians are in a war, it's an existential crisis. They are leaving to save their lives. Women and children primarily, by the way, to be added. These are families who've popped over and are going to stay forever. Are you walking so there, Kieran? The, the line is, is bad. Could you just maybe, if you're walking, just, just stand in one spot yeah. if you can? Yeah. Have you got me now, Mick? I'll yeah, that's here. perfect. Yeah. Now, I know the okay. president, I know Assad, the president of Syria, told his people to come home. Uh, and you, you can't really blame the Syrians for not leaving Ireland because of the quality of life is here. Um, Assad is a race. That's, w- w- that's not our uh, job to provide a higher quality of life for, for uh, the world, Mick. Like, uh, like when you right, when you bring in people, right, and you put them up, right, when some of those people are non-productive, okay, then it lowers the quality of life here in this country, and at the moment our quality of life is is plummeting. Worth, you know, like we need to we need to start taking care of our own people. First, yes, but and that, foremost, that, that's not the fault of those uh, fleeing, um, you know, that's, fleeing that's war and, re- and repression. With with the that's, clothes on their back, they came here, and they came here looking for a better life. And we've been yeah, given right. a better life through countries all over the world when we had to flee uh, because we had a famine, we had no food, and a British government that couldn't care less. Mick, Mick the population of the world is close to eight billion people. Okay, um, uh, more than. More than half of those people survive right on a couple of dollars a day. We cannot fix the world's problems right with the resources we have. We're a tiny, a tiny island in the middle of the Atlantic. Our resources are finite. 
we cannot look after the world. We've been very good with the last few decades. Okay? We've really shown ourselves to be compassionate people. But we're at the point now where the dam has filled and we need to say that we need to close our borders, restrict the numbers coming into the country at least, and fix our own problems here at home. And then when, it, when everything's fixed, when our own people all have their own bed and their own roof over their heads, right, then we can say, right, we've this much left in the kitty. Let's help others. Kieran, do you, not, we, do you not think Derek is justified to, to be saying, if I'm not renovating for at least some Irish, I'm not renovating at all? Absolutely not. And I'm absolutely appalled by the language that's been used here. The xenophobic kind of talk is exactly... Xenophobic. Here, here we go yeah, with these words which again. Exactly, yeah. with, with respect, I didn't interrupt you. Okay. Now, for one, you made a comment that the Syrians aren't going home. First of all, how can you compare a democratic society like the Ukraine with a, a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship like Syria. Second of all, it's women and children from the Ukraine who've come here at huge personal cost, and they're devastated to be away from their menfolk, who are by and large the army of Ukraine fighting for their homeland. They want to be repatriated, they want to go home. The Syrians did not want to fight for um, Assad. They left in their droves because it was a brutal war. They are not comparable. Now. In, in, in respect of your comment about shouldn't we, um, the dam is full and we should close the doors. So why don't we close the museums? Why didn't we close the museums? Because museums are, they're nice to have. We don't need them. So why didn't we close them? We use all that money to help people. You come back, my friend, in 50 and 100 years' time, there will be problems. Well, I'll be dead if this does. There will be, there will be homeless people on the streets of Dublin. It is not just about not having a roof over your head. It's a holistic issue. The Father McFerry's um, trust will say it's not as easy as build houses and the people who die in the streets of Dublin can go into a house and then have their lives saved. It is a societal what? problem. I get that. But that does not mean, one emergency does not mean that you close the doors on everyone. We have multiple emergencies and right now, Mick made a very valid point. We have to house these people. The long-term benefits to our society will be immense. Not because the Ukrainians will stay here but because we will have shed um, kindness, humanity, um, positive thinking, and um, helping our neighbours in a time when they need it. So the They're Ukraine not our neighbours, first of all. Uh, they live half a world away. They live half a world away. With respect, with respect, every single one of the 8 billion people you just referenced are our neighbours. Because they're oh, okay. with God. In 1937, we, th we did not stand up to a bully. And look what it brought the world to. We need to stand up to William. The price that we have to pay, which, by the way, I'm not particularly happy putting 100 quid instead of 70 quid in my petrol tank. But if 30 quid is the difference between our freedom at 30 euro a tank, and yes, it does affect me. It affects all of us. But the price... Can I jump in there? We're going to pay the price anyway. Okay, let's, 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 let's give Derek a chance. Go on, Derek. Yeah. Um, what about the people who don't have an extra 30 quid in their wallet? Uh... What about what those about people? people? Who? What about the people? My friend, uh, my point is not about the extra 30 quid. Everyone is suffering. But our price to pay to stop that monster in Moscow from doing what he's doing is far less than what the Ukrainians are paying. How, we must how, pay how is increasing our own fuel prices going to stop uh, Putin in Moscow? Right? Since we restricted... Since, hang on a second now, let me finish. 
since we restricted the, the fuel that Russia exports to Ireland, okay, the, uh, the, uh, the stock market in Russia has increased. Right, because he just turned around and he started selling to other countries. Right? Meanwhile, we're here. Right? People are putting 5 and 10 euro into their tanks again, right? like they were in the 80s. Every 50% of the cars driving around the roads right, have a yellow light on because they can't afford to put fuel inside in their uh, tank. But can I ask you one quick, right, another question, Eamon? It's Eamon, isn't it? Kieran. 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 Yeah, Kieran, sorry. Time's against us now, lads, so let's finish up quickly if we can. Yeah. How many Ukrainians right, did you take into your house? Oh, my God. How many? Oh, my God. Okay. How many I Ukrainians many did you Ukrainians. take, Kieran? I haven't taken any Ukrainians into my house. You haven't, haven't taken Ukrainians. So, so, so you're good enough. You're good enough for societies all around Ireland right, to fill up their hotels, to fill up their empty houses with strangers from another country, and you'll come here on the radio right, and berate me uh, for... Um, standing up against it and not supporting it, right? But you won't put your own hand into your pocket and feed one of them. Do you know what I call you? I call you a hypocrite, Kieran. Kieran, that leads me to a question. Would you give 10 days of your own time for free to help the situation? On DIY SOS, would you give 10 days? Have you skills that, that would lend to the renovation of those houses? I don't have the skills, um, um, mm-hmm. Nick, but I absolutely, I have contributed financially, despite what that man said. I can't put a Ukrainian into my house right now. And by the way, we don't import Russian oil. So there's, there's no limit to the amount of facts that guy's throwing out that are around 50% of cars going around with yellow light. Where did you get that stat from? Then, it's just then why, it's populism, then, Mick, Mick, it's populism, and with respect, no. the man is throwing out hashtags that make absolutely no sense. We should welcome the yeah. Ukrainians, they'll be here temporarily, and we'll be able to cut before. Fi- finally, Kieran, do you agree we should welcome an unlimited amount of Ukrainians? I believe we should carry our fair share. It's not an unlimited amount, Mick. Every single country in the EU is carrying its share. We should carry ours. For the amount of time mm-hmm. we'll be financially supported by the EU, and as a result of this, as you correctly said, the Ukrainians will go home to their families when this is over, and we will be left with the infrastructure we should have. It's a shame that it takes an emergency to get the money to put um, in place the necessary resources to house all our people. But it's We've had an emergency now. here for over 15 years. And now the money is coming from outside. The money is in prioritized. Yeah. It's coming in. And I, I believe this is a short-term problem, maybe one or two years. And when they go, those 30 houses in Mitchellstown will be there for the next 50 for Irish people. All right. Right. And, if, right, and if it's not over in two years, Kieran, right, will you take the excess migrants into your house? Will you take them then? Can we get your feet here the, on I'm the air not, today? I'm Can not, you commit? I'm, I'm not talking to this guy. Thanks, oh, yeah, yeah, Thanks, yeah, Kieran. Yeah. Listen, I, thanks, I think... Boy. Thanks, Kieran. Bye-bye. Uh, listen, well, well done, Derek. Thing, you, yeah, very quickly, please. Yeah, the, the terms there that Kieran's thrown around, uh, xenophobe and populist and racist and all these, these don't work anymore. Okay, if, if right, you love your country and if you love your people and if you want better things for your country, right... Uh, we've started calling those people uh, racist here the last few years. It's not racist to love your country. Okay? I think so, your heart's uh, in the right place, Derek. You're still going to withhold your services, are you? I'm still, I'm absolutely. If they, if they agree to housing 50% Irish, I will uh, gather up my tools today and I'll go to work for them. All right. And I'll stay there until the job is over. Fair play to you. Derek Bly, thank you very much for coming on the Neil Prandeville Show this morning. Cheers. You're welcome. Get it off your chest. 
Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818-104-106, Red FM. Well, it's a very emotive topic. We're going to return to it after news at 10. This is Mick Mulcahy on the Neil Prenderville Show. But taking us all the way to news, here's Housing Minister Dara O'Brien and Carol Nolan duking it out in Doyle Aaron. Absolutely convinced that if we do not learn to find some way of exploring in a grown-up, pragmatic and constructive way the links between unsustainable levels of inward migration or asylum into this state and housing, then we are never going to find a meaningful solution to what is already an overwhelming crisis. All of this means that Ireland's capacity to provide even the bare minimum of emergency accommodation and shelter to its own citizens and those genuinely fleeing war is being severely undermined. Um, Deputy, I respectfully say that your comments here this afternoon uh, pose a risk to social cohesion. I want to be very clear on behalf of the government. That's outrageous. outrageous. You have a problem with every speaker this morning, it appears. Disgraceful. I'm saying is government have been very, very clear, uh, particularly in relation to the the response to our friends from Ukraine, that we will we will take in as many Ukrainian citizens fleeing a brutal war, uh, vested upon them through no fault of their own, uh, and we will not uh, we will not bring forward any caps in that regard. We're on track this year to deliver more social homes this year than we've done in any year in the history of the state. Now, Matty, try to behave yourself a little bit. What I would say... Arrogance. I'll ask you a direct question back. Do you support this state providing refuge and safe harbour to citizens from Ukraine who are fleeing a brutal war? And, and question. Un- Excuse me, I asked you the we question. We do. Are you now questioning opposition your, from as your well? Comments here today, from your you comments question. here today, you're trying to parse that. What you're trying to say here is that, that there will be some impact on our delivery of housing for people... Town Corla, there's little point in me trying to respond. There's little point in me trying to respond at this point. Listen, I will suspend the House if people don't allow the Deputy, Minister to Deputy, Deputy Nolan, Deputy Nolan has, has walked a very fine line here this afternoon. And what you're calling for effectively is a cap on immigration and a cap on asylum into this country. Do you want to draw a distinction between who comes in here? Is that what you're asking to do? Because we won't, we won't go down that line. Can I, can I just respond, please? Yeah. Um, your, your comments are absolutely outrageous, and the fact that you have a reckless policy in place. Minister, I'll make my point very clear. Are you saying that we welcome everybody in only to sleep for years on hotel floors? Because that's what you're saying over there. And that's how reckless your government is. So how dare you misconstrue what I have said to you? I asked you very direct questions. We have a housing crisis here. We have a situation that is at an unsustainable level. It would be lovely to be able to give everybody a house, and you, you've said that yourself, but are you suggesting that we can do that? Are you suggesting that it's fine to have people on hotel floors for years? Is that what, Because that's what you're saying to me here. And I think you need to come down off your high horse and face the reality and face the facts. News at 10 is next. I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. 
Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Now, huge interest in a bid to erect a Michael Collins statue in Cork City. All in English in the Examiner reporting that efforts to erect a statue of Michael Collins in Cork City are now gathering pace as the 100th anniversary of his assassination approaches. This is August 22nd, so about six or seven weeks away. Uh, the Irish Examiner has learned that a group of Collins enthusiasts, some of whom play key roles in the erection of a statue of Collins in uh, Clonakilty, uh, unveiled by actor Liam Neeson back in uh, 20 years ago in 2002, have agreed to raise funds for a statue that will then be handed over to the city for placement in the city centre. Cork businessman and uh, Collins enthusiast Jerry Carey and Noel Scanlon and Tim Crowley of the Michael Collins Centre and Museum near Clonakilty. We have some passes for that to give away, by the way. Let's try and do that before the end of the programme. Uh, and they based their statue design on one of the most famous photographs of the revolutionary leader. It's not him in uniform. It's him standing with the uh, trademark hat. Uh, he looks older than his tender young years. He was only in his early 30s uh, when he was assassinated almost 100 years ago. He was a revolutionary leader. I often wonder how kind history would have been to Michael Collins had he not had his life taken and his future taken from him in Bail-le-Blanc almost 100 years ago. But uh, for sure, he is one of the most revered figures in Irish history. His grave is the most visited in Glasnevin by a country mile. Uh, and that's very interesting too. There's still reverence shown 100 years later to Michael Collins. And uh, it's understood uh, that the... Uh, the organising committee would like to see the statue placed at ground level and not on a plinth uh, to be amongst the people, as Collins was. And Fine Gael councillor Shane O'Callaghan, who has liaised with the group, has submitted a motion that should become before Cork City Council for debate within weeks, calling on the council to facilitate the placing of the statue in the city centre. He said he would like it placed on St. Patrick Street, and he joins me in line two. Good morning, councillor Shane O'Callaghan. Morning, Mick. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Give us the background to this. Uh, there's obviously a positive impetus finally coming into this. I think was it was there a failed effort before to get this done? Well, there was. Um, in 2020, I would have submitted um, a motion to Cork City Council calling for the council to erect statues of Michael Collins, Thomas McCartan, and Terence McSweeney in Cork City Centre. Um, but it w- when it came to a vote, um, my motion um, was supported by Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin and some independents, but it was voted down uh, because of the opposition of Fianna Fáil, the Green Party, uh, Labour and several independents. Okay, so um, but this time I would be confident that, that it will pass because I mean a major issue at the time, uh, particularly for Fianna Fáil voting against it, was the cost involved. And obviously this time the cost will no longer be an issue because the statue, if all goes to plan, will be made and presented to Cork City Council at no cost to it. Okay, well, what um, will it cost? Well, I, I, I think that the the estimates, I think, are about 100,000. Um, but again, that will, that the, the plan is for that, all, the, the entirety of that funding to be uh, provided by this group as a result of a fundraising committee, um, similar to the fundraising drive uh, or campaign, which was, which was held uh, and which raised the necessary funding for the statue of Michael Collins. Um, in Emmett Square in Clannacilty. Uh, at that stage, the vast majority of the funding would have come from, you know, small donations from ordinary people and some would have come from um, some, from, well, from larger donations, etc. But that's that's the plan this time as well. Um, and as you mentioned, um, Tim Crowley would have been, you know, who's, you know, who runs the Mike Collins Centre Museum West Cork and operates Mike Collins tours on a regular basis. He would have been one of the main members um, of that fundraising campaign. He'd been on the committee that made 
um, that, that organised that fundraising campaign. So he has a lot of experience in the area um, already because he's already done it essentially and he's proposing um, together with uh, Noel Scandal and Jerry Carey and others to, to do the same thing again. Um, essentially, what they're saying is they'll, they'll basically raise the funding and you know, have the statue created, have it commissioned, have it built and present this to Cork City Council. And all Cork City Council will have to do with that stage is to facilitate its placement at a suitable location in Cork City Centre. Okay, which, um, you, which you would like to be on the ground? Maybe on a two or three inch plinth? Well, I, I, um, I suppose like, well, my original proposal the last time was for uh, the statues of Collins and McCartan and McSweeney to be on plinths. But um, Tim Crowley and Noel Scandal and, and Jerry Carey um, and I, look, I, I do agree with them. Prefer the idea of it to be on the ground, to be because we're, as Collins was amongst the people, it's much more personal when something is on the ground rather than looking up to it. So I mean, I, I actually agree with them. I mean, they, they, they make a very good point. In that yeah, there's so, another yeah. great and famous photograph of Michael Collins uh, in oratory stance. Um, you know, very much like uh, maybe James Larkin would have been in Dublin. That might have been a, another option, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at the picture in the front of the examiner. It certainly is uh, striking the correct pose. It's non-military, uh, and, and I think and I think it would attract a lot of tourists to take that very special photograph. It would, it would, and um, you know, and, and Jerry Carey, um, you know, obviously he's he's a huge Collins enthusiast, and he's a very successful businessman, as you know, and and has been a major employer in Cork. But he he also thinks, in addition to commemorating Collins and his seminal role in, you know, achieving independence and establishing an independent Irish state, that it would be a great tourist attraction, which would encourage Collins enthusiasts from all over the world to visit Cork. And Noel Scandal is also very much of that view. And as you pointed out earlier, um, the, the, the grave of Collins is by far the most popular visited uh, grave in Glasnevin. And I think that um, a statue of Collins, in addition to commemorating... Um, you know, the seminal role he played in in creating, you know, in leading the military resistance to British rule and um, running the finance of the outlawed Dáil government during the War of Independence and, you know, playing the leading role in negotiating and establishing an independent democratic Irish state and its institutions uh, of the state, such as the Gardaí and the Army. So in, in addition to commemorating Collins and his achievements, it would also, I think, um, you know, serve as, as something that could be, could, could come to become a, a tourist attraction uh, for college enthusiasts from all over the world. Okay. Um, uh, n- now, uh, by the way, there is a fantastic documentary, and this is just an aside, on Glasnevin Cemetery. It's an RT broadcast. I'm not sure if it's an RT produced documentary called One Million Dubliners. If you can come across it, it's absolutely brilliant as a documentary. But that's Glasnevin. Is there anywhere in the world, in the democratic world certainly, uh, that a leader of a democratic nation is assassinated and there is no national commemoration statue to him? Except here. Well, I, I don't. Well, I suppose one could argue, and and um, I'd say Tim Crowley and, and Noel Scandal certainly would argue that, um, in the absence of any um, major statue of Collins in in either Dublin or Cork City, that the only na- that that the statue of Mentanakilty at the moment is is a national commemoration. But certainly, that's the only statue. That's the only full size statue of Collins uh, in this country. But there's none in our cities. There's none there. There's a bust of him in Fitzgerald Park, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I would say that probably in the, it's it's the only country in the world that doesn't have a, a major city with with a statue like that of essentially, uh, as you say, I would argue the person who did more than anyone else during the War of Independence to achieve independence for this country, and as they say, was essentially the first leader of an independent Irish state, and in 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 and you know, 
established its democratic institutions, its Gardaí, its its um, you know its army, etc. You know it's it's as I say it's democratic. You know it's democratic institutions and and for the him then to be you know obviously killed. Well, some would say you know rather than assassinated, he was actually killed in action at Bain the Law. Yes, but um, either way, obviously he died tragically in in, in his I think it was his thirty first year. He wasn't yet thirty two, um, and. As I say, you know, that he's the great what could have been, what could he have done had he lived. And, um, you know, I mean, there's obviously debate about that. I, w- I, would, I would say this, look, it's all theoretical, obviously, but I would say he would have done great, more great things for this country. Um, yes, I, I would say it is probably the only country in the democratic world, or indeed in, that's, that, you know, the leader of, the first leader of the new democracy um, who was killed, um, you know, yeah. at the beginning of that process, and um, doesn't have a commemorative statue in one of its cities. And look, I, I understand, you know, obviously this is, you know, this is, um, you know, there's obviously the civil war part, you know, issue. But um, look, the Taoiseach Michal Martin has been invited uh, by the chairman of the Michael Collins Commemoration Committee, uh, Garrett Kelleher, who's who's a Fine Gael city councillor, by the way. Um, to jointly address the annual Bay in the Blog commemoration with Leo Radgar to mark the 100th anniversary of Collins' death this year. I mean, that is that is a major um, step forward, um, and uh, I think it's a sign that the country is moving on from the tragic events of the Civil War. And I think that increasingly there is a recognition that there were patriots on both sides of the Civil War who were motivated by a genuine desire to do what was best for their country. Yeah, but maybe, um, maybe it's a sign that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are coalescing in ideals. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say that's the case. I mean, uh, Sinn Féin, there's, I mean, sh- I mean, some some members of Sinn Féin or some Sinn Féin voters are not not fans of Collins, but others are. Mm. Um, a lot of a lot of Sinn Féin uh, supporters are, are also um, would consider Michael Collins a hero. When, when, um, when you look at other statues that that, that are that are popular around the place, uh, and and some of them are misplaced, I think the Christie Ring statue up in the airport should be possibly also on Patrick Street as a representative of our national games. Um, but I would agree o- with you on that. Yeah. O- I, I think I- that Patrick Street needs more statues in general. Yeah, other iconic but, statues, of course, uh, the ones I know of anyway, of course there's the Collins one in Clannacilty. The Annie Moore statue at the corner of the Deepwater Quay in Cove is very much photographed. Uh, Dublin has its heroes amongst them. They have a statue of Anne Olivia, or as they call it, the Floozy in, in the Jacuzzi. We've got Rory yeah. Gallagher here in statue down at uh, the Paul Street car park. Uh, you know, as a musical icon, although Rory was born in uh, Ballyshannon in County Donegal, he's claimed as a, a cult Cork hero. But Collins in well, particular, yeah, Co- Collins in particular has, Gallagher, has achieved yeah. cult hero status akin to um, maybe Vasily Saitsev in Russia, who was the subject of that movie Enemy at the Gates. But he's almost like a Che Guevara, fi- Ernesto Che Guevara figure, isn't he? I would say so, yes. I mean, I, I suppose part of that is due to the fact that he died so young and died tragically so young and the, the enormous amount he achieved in his, in his very short life I mean uh, you know I mean it's, it's it's phenomenal what he achieved particularly in the period from 1919 to, to 1922 and just in those few short years the, the amount he achieved in terms of um, you know fighting the British Empire which is at its height at the time to a standstill and negotiating a treaty and establishing you know, um, an independent Irish state, um, for the first time in history. I mean, I think it's it's his achievements are phenomenal. But look, I mean, as I say, I know that there are people who would be from you know the anti-treaty um, tradition who who would you know not be as enthusiastic as I am about a statue of Collins. And um, 
But I would say that, and I have said this many times before, that I would I would be more than happy to support uh, the erection of a statue from the someone from the anti-treaty side of the civil war, someone like Liam Lynch or Tom Barry or Liam DC or the Wallace sisters, and particularly if the necessary funds are raised beforehand and the statue is presented to the Cork City Council as is the proposal here. So, I mean, it's not... Is the statue know, ready or does it have to be made yet? It has to be made. Like, the first step is, as I say, put down um, the motion to Cork City Council, OK? That'll be on the agenda at the next council meeting, which is next Monday. It's then likely to be sent from there to the, commemorate, the Centenary Commemorations Committee. I'm also a member of that committee, and I'd be hoping to send it from there back to the council meeting in September. So it'll hopefully all going to panel be voted on in September. If it's then... But can we not have a vote before his 100th anniversary on the 22nd of August? Well, ideally, I would like there to be a vote on it. Um, and it announced on that date, maybe. At the, at the council meeting next, next Monday. But uh, unfortunately, it tends to, you know, I think that they'll probably send it to the Centenary Commemorations Committee. But look, September... I mean, it's still in the in the year of uh, of Collins's death, and as I say, if it's passed by the city council, the fundraising campaign will almost immediately begin as a result of that. Um, and look, I mean, again, the the, the Green Party, um, the council of the Green Party would have voted against uh, my proposal the last time, but um, you know, the image of Collins, I would say, with the bicycle is probably the most famous image of any Irish person with a bicycle, um, and I'd be hopeful that they that the Green Party this time would have, would embrace that image as being a great advertisement and boost for, you know, environmentally friendly transportation and draw attention to the fact <laughs> that 100 years ago, an important historical figure like Collins even then preferred to use a bike instead of a car as a means of transportation. So okay. I, mean, I think that, I think that it'll, it hopefully will appeal um, to parties across the board. But the, the first step, that obviously no fundraising campaign can, can happen until it is passed by the City Council. But if, if so, as I say... All the city council, all we're proposing the city council to do is facilitate its placement. The, the, the funds will be raised. The city council doesn't have to have any involvement in that. The funds will be raised. The statue will be commissioned. The statue will be created, and it will be presented to the city council. And at that stage, all the city council will have to do is to is to is to facilitate its placement in a suitable location in Cork City. I, I ideally would like to see it in Patrick Street, but I'm I'm open to. You know, open as long as it's somewhere in a suitable location in Cork City Centre, I, I would be happy. And what about and the Jack Charlton unique. statue that's, I, I believe, in, in in the upstairs of the airport building somewhere? Yeah, look again. Iconic I'm a fan of Jack Charlton. I think he did. I think he did. I think he did great things um, for obviously for Irish soccer and and you know in terms of boosting morale for the whole country. Um, so I mean, look, I would be a fan of, of Jack Charlton. I, I do. I don't know where necessarily a suitable location would be, but I mean, um, certainly I think that um, a statue of Collins, um, you know, I, I, w- I would hope that it would be placed prominently um, somewhere in Cork City Centre, ideally Patrick Street. But All right. I'm, I'm, I'm one, f- one, one final question. As most Corkonians who open their newspapers or open social media over the weekend were saying, been there, who done that? to uh, the father of temperance, Father Matthew, who had a wheelie bin put in his head over the weekend. Do you think Collins' statue at ground level would be treated with more reverence? Would it almost be unlucky or a pishogue? Don't, don't mess with the Michael Collins statue, you'll have bad luck. Or, is that something that could happen? Will he be treated with reverence, do you think? I'd like to think he would be treated with reverence. As I say, he's certainly revered and always has been by, by Fianna Gael people. And I would say that... that you know, supporters of Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin and, and other parties would 
have a degree in some of respect for him and in some cases would be big fans of his. So, um, and look, I mean, even people who are not interested in politics at all, um, I would say would have a certain, you would know about Collins, maybe they'd seen the movie with Liam Neeson and they would have, um, you know, they would have, I, I think there would be a degree of reverence uh, for Collins among the vast, vast majority of the population, which is why consistently in polls that are take that take place about the greatest Irish man and uh, whoever lived, and um, Collins always comes out on top. Okay. Always is the way the most the, the, the person voted for the most by the vast majority of Irish people, or well, not by the majority, but he always comes out on top as you know the person, the choice of the most. You know the choice of the most people yeah. to be as the as the greatest Irish man that ever lived, and I, I, I that obviously says it all. Okay, um, and as we speak, of course, the site of his death in Mayla Blaw was uh, is now undergoing extensive upgrade ahead of the special centenary commemorative event, uh, which yeah, is on August twenty first. I believe it'll be intended by Antishuk and Antonishta, and uh, what you're saying is, Mihal Martin has now been invited to speak as well. Well, yeah, as the Taoiseach, yeah, he was in, in um, so it'll be addressed by both Mihal Martin and Leo Radgar as Taoiseach and Tanisha. And again, that's the first time that a leader of Fianna Fáil will address um, Bain Leblanc. Um, and as I say, that was he was invited to that by the Michael Collins Commemoration Committee, you know, whose chairman is, is a city councillor as well, Councillor Garrett Keller. And as I say, that is indicative of, you know, this country, uh, you know, is the fact that this country is moving on from the tragic events of the Civil War and, you know, and an increased recognition that, look, that there were patriots on both sides of the Civil War. And, yeah, and, and that's, say, that's the dichotomy the which caught Collins when, 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 he had to, when he had to fire on the four courts. Either, if he didn't do it, the British would put boots on the ground and do it instead. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and look, I mean, I'm not going to get into a, a debate about that, but yes, I mean, the, the British certainly did force his hand at that point. In time. Yeah. All right. Thank, um, thanks, Amelia. We watch it with interest. The last thing we, 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 we wanted was British soldiers coming into Ireland and, and you know, I mean, maybe using it as an excuse to stay here. Um, so it was a very uncertain time uh, for all involved. And look, they and arguably they would not have even got to that point uh, where, where the British were leaving were it not for the phenomenal um, efforts of Collins during the War of Independence. Okay, uh, we, we'll watch it with interest. Will you keep us updated, Councillor Shane O'Callaghan? I will, uh, of course, Mick. Thanks I, for having me on. Uh, I think, especially in the, in the centenary year, the, the impetus is there now. Uh, you know, the moral imperative is there to recognise uh, the great Michael Collins on our main street uh, in his in his native city, I suppose. It is his, it is his native city, and he was always proud Cork man. I mean, I know he's from West Cork, but um, he was a proud Cork man. And, and I think there would be a certain... It'll be fitting for the city council to facilitate this because um, when City Hall was destroyed by the Black and Tens um, on the 11th of December 1920 during the burning of Cork, and as you know, the necessary funding for the reconstruction of City Hall were actually specifically secured by Collins from the great British government um, during the treaty negotiations. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's news to me. Yeah. It wasn't the new city hall wasn't officially unveiled until 1932 by De Valera, but actually the funds and necessary for it were demanded and secured by Collins from the British government as part of the treaty negotiations. So Collins had a had a deep attachment to his native city, you know, his city, um, which was Cork City, um, and he was a proud Cork man all his life. So perhaps it's time for City Hall to pay it back. Councillor Shane O'Callaghan, thank you very much for joining us this morning on the thank Neil Prendeville Show. Thanks. More in a moment. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 104 106. Red FM.
10.30 on this Monday morning, uh, Independence Day, of course, for all our American friends, uh, the 4th of July. And we've got Philip on line one. Hi, Philip. <laughs> Hi, Michael. How are you? Very good. You say a statue of Michael Collins is long overdue. Yeah, I do, yeah, I do. And um, plus as well, one to trail up Mark Sivna, August, um, uh, uh, Turns next week in August. Um, um, oh, good God! The other Lord Mayor as well. Thomas McCurtain. Thomas McCurtain. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I do apologise. I do apologise. You know, Mick, can I preface this whole interview by saying that um, um, I'm beginning to wonder, right, at this hour of my life, what country I'm living in, right? Uh, it's that everywhere I go, right, you know, I see Ukrainian flags flying, and I don't know whether I'm living in Ukraine or whether I'm living in the Republic of Ireland. You know, it's kind of um, you know I'm a snowmer these days, right? And um, I'd like to think, right, that I'm living in the country, right, you know, that I grew up in and that my parents grew up in and my grandparents grew up in, right, and it's um, the, the Ukrainian flags everywhere, right, but we're very, very, you know, sparse on our own national flag, so, I mean, I'm after prefacing this conversation now by saying that, right, you know, I had to get that off my chest. No, no, that's fine, but I would venture that the Ireland that your uh, grandparents grew up in might have been occupied itself by a, a foreign force. I agree with you there, right? Uh, I've seen old movies um, um, of Cork, right? And Cork was uh, bedecked with uh, Union Jacks and so forth. But th- th- that was the sign of the times. I do know that, right? You know, but uh, yeah. Um, but then afterwards, right, we became a, a you know a free state, and afterwards a republic, and we have our own national flag. And yeah, I think it's totally representative of the uh, vast majority of us, anyhow, right? You know, so I'd love to see it fly more often, particularly outside civic buildings, right? And, state buildings and stuff. Like, for instance, I live very close to Yall. I'm uh, in the Castle Martyr region. And uh, I go for coffee every day right, to Yall simply because, right, I have to bring my little grandson to school right, in Yall mm-hmm. and uh, pick him up. So when I take him to school, uh, I go for uh, coffee. Right? I, I like to have a really good coffee in the morning, right, you know, and I sit down in this little coffee bar. I won't advertise it, but it's directly across, right, you know, from the uh, civic offices in Yall, which is a beautiful building. Three flagpoles outside, flags for everything flying, right, but no national flag, you know. I think that's a disgrace, to be quite honest about it, right, you know. So, I mean... I, I've, I've not seen the Ukrainian... No, I have in houses and that kind of thing, but I've not really... On, on buildings that are open to the public, be they oh, yeah, private yeah, business or right. else. I, I've not seen the Ukrainian flag fly without the Irish flag, uh, no, generally. Not, you go down to Yard now and you go up the mile, right, you know, and there you see it outside the civic offices in Yard. There's the Ukrainian flag flying high outside our own public building and uh, no Irish flag whatsoever, none. And I mean that sincerely. You'll have every flag for every little cause and everything up in the flagpoles there. There are three flagpoles and uh, no Irish flag and I think that's pathetic, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, like for instance, right, okay, I'll I give you one instance, right? I'll give you another instance of what's going on. Um, like, for instance, right, I pass through Ladies Bridge every day. You know Ladies Bridge? I do, a lovely East Cork. Yeah, East Cork, yeah, yeah. I, guess I, I, I live very close, right, close by. And um, down below in Ladies Bridge, there's a, a national monument and it's dedicated right to the Manchester Markers. It's one of the very, very few... Fenian um, monuments you'll find in the entire country. But this one in particular, right, is dedicated, right, to the three Manchester martyrs who were Fenians, but two of them actually came from the locality down here, Allen and O'Brien. And right next to us, right, we have the national flagpole, the flagpole, and uh, the tricolour was removed and the Ukrainian flag topped us, you know? In in flag etiquette, and I'm only coming at this from a a nautical perspective, there's yeah. very, very strong naval flag etiquette. There's very, very strong, you know, cruising sailboat, motorboat flag etiquette. 
uh, in that your national flag must always be flying the highest. I agree. Yeah, and I, that's what I thought as well. And I think that's the protocol as well, as directed by the government in this country. But it seems that nobody adheres to it, right? And, you know, these things are just left there and they're left flying. And, you know, to be quite honest about it, I really don't think people notice these things anymore for whatever reason. I don't know, right, you know. But I'm, look, I'm proud to be Irish for all our faults or failings, but we also have a good side, right? But at the same time, right, you know, it is our country, right? It's your country. It's all our listeners' country, right? And even from those that have come from abroad into this country, right, that have, you know, embraced this country, uh, because I have lots of Polish friends. My daughter-in-law is Polish, right? I, li- I have a little half Polish, uh, half Irish uh, um um, granddaughter, right? She's, she's uh, she'll be one next week, right? And I, I have a little half uh, Finnish and a half uh, Irish grandson who's nine years old, you know. And those that come into our community and embrace our community and live amongst us, right? They're as Irish as you or me, right? You know. But that's what I love, right? You know, this integration is lovely, but unfortunately, it's not widespread, right? You know, it's not widespread. Okay, is 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 the title Ukrainian an all-encompassing one, which covers people from the West? of yeah. Ukraine who, who are not technically in the war zone, who could possibly yeah. be travelling here, yeah. as, as against war refugees who are in the east and the Donbass and Mariupol uh, and those areas. Uh, is there a distinction made as to whether there's a genuine flee from conflict? Uh, and I don't want to be so crass about this, but are we looking at economic tourism? Uh, well, that's a great question, right? And I actually think you just uh, hit the uh, nail with the hammer, right? You know, a lot of it is economic tourism. Um, look, I, I, I study history, I, I study geopolitics, right? I know what's going on, right? You know, um, um, like for instance, right, most people don't discuss this, right? Um, but we say we take the Donbass region, right, which actually incorporates the two provinces, right? Are there, they're now deemed to be republics of Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. Um, they're all Russian speaking people, right? And uh, traditionally it was always a Russian enclave. And uh, to be quite honest about it, right, since the maiden revolution in 2014, that place has been under constant attack by the Ukrainian forces, right? What most people don't discuss is the fact, right, that 14,000 innocent civilians in those particular regions, right, have actually been killed and slaughtered by indiscriminate uh, Ukrainian shellfire and stuff like that. So when they declared their republics, right, it did give the Russians an opportunity to move in, right, as they were... They, you know, so-called protecting their people, right, and protecting Luhansk and Donetsk, right, because it does appear, now I can't confirm this, but it does appear, right, that the actual Ukrainians, particularly the nationalist side of their army, were lining up, right, you know, to wipe out Luhansk and Donetsk once and for all. So, like, that probably adds a little bit of credibility, if not an awful lot of credibility, to uh, Russia's claim, right, you know, that they were going in to denazify the place, right, and not only that, right, you know, to bring peace and protection to the area. But with regards to all the fighting, all the fighting that's going on, right, is actually going on in that particular region, which is the eastern part of Ukraine. And that's where the huge, huge, and I mean absolutely huge, genuine refugee problem is. You take the city of Mariupol, like, for instance, right, which was the home of the Azov Battalion, and uh, the fight they put up, right, you know, uh, particularly the taking of the Azov steel plants, right, that city was decimated, not just by the Russians who were trying to take the place, right, fighting uh, street by street, house by house, right, but also by indiscriminate Ukrainian shelling, right, and... um, I've seen the pictures, right? I've seen the movies, right? I've seen everything with regards to one town in Mariupol and other parts 
of uh, that particular region and the tragedy that's after falling on the people over there, right? It is absolutely horrendous. They've lost their homes, they've lost their livelihoods, they've lost their lives, they've lost their limbs. What about the people indiscriminately bombed in a shopping centre miles from the conflict zone just to tacitly send a message to the G7 leaders? Uh, That was very crass of Putin. Yeah, look, Michael, it's like this, right, okay? uh, Look, I'm not saying there's two sides to every story, right? Russia claims that, okay, there was a false flag event, right? The other crowd are saying, right, okay, there was... Um, um, you know, a deliberate attack on the shopping area. But let's be honest here, right? You know, we have to, right? Russia describes this, right, as an ongoing military operation. There is a difference between an ongoing military operation and all out war. In an ongoing military operation, what you actually do is, right, you take out military and strategic targets, right? In a war, you take out the infrastructure and uh, everything with regards to the infrastructure. The Russians have not by any circumstances taken out any infrastructure in the entirety of the Ukraine. The only places that they have taken out, we say, would be rail yards, which are shipping weapons from the west, uh, west uh, eastwards, right, okay, to continue on with the war. And it's, you know, it, that's the reason why. I'm not saying I'm pro-Russian, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying I'm pro-Ukrainian. I am not, right? I'm just trying to keep a balance here on the whole thing. But can, right? can, can the war be ended without ramping up the, you know, the body bag count? Can, can it be ended without NATO and Europe going in aggressively and risking the threat of all-out nuclear war? Well, you see, here, here in the, the, the rope race, okay, it, it appears, right, you know, and it, this is not circumstantial, but it's pointed to the fact that this is a NATO-induced war, and uh, NATO actually caused this war, right, and uh, Russia, in, in response, replied, right, by actually taking, coming into the uh, republics of Luhansk and, and Donbass, uh, uh, sorry, Donetsk, right. Um, can it be stopped? Yes, it can, right? If uh, Mr. Zelensky, right, I'd be quite honest about it, right, had agreed to the Minsk terms, which were part of the uh, supernatural um, agreement, right, that was brought in after 2014, right, to recognise these regions and to give them some part of autonomy, right? Which so what's, what's right? the upshot here? We look, are we looking at the annexation for Russia of the eastern part of the Ukraine, a peaceful settlement, and, and a much uh, smaller Ukraine eventually gaining access to the European Union and the markets? Well, you see, here in now, like, another road, right, you know, I, I, I think from the um, uh, United Nations perspective, right, Ukraine is actually not recognised as a region, uh, is not, not recognised as a country simply because, right, you see, you cannot be recognised, right, as a sovereign state if other states, right, have actually claims on your territory, as do Poland. So right? it'll end up like Czechoslovakia? Absolutely, yeah. And so there are no clearly defined borders, right, in, in actually Ukraine, because Russia has a claim to it, as does Poland, as does parts of Moldova, as do parts of Romania, as do parts of uh, the Czech Republic as well. So, so let, let me right? pose you this question, Philip, rhetorically even. Uh, if the yeah. east of Ukraine should have been returned to Russia, as Russia would contend that it's yeah. Russian, uh, and they're denazifying it, why weren't the soldiers welcomed with open arms when they crossed the border first? Why is there such fierce resistance? That's coming from the Ukrainian nationalists. The people, right, it appears, right, that the people in these regions, right, um, are welcoming the Russians big time. The Russians are actually supporting them, right, with regards to food. They're refugees. They're looking after them. They build hospitals, right, field hospitals. They're feeding them, right. They're looking after them. They, they were 
And that's to see, that's where all the lies are coming in, the propaganda are coming in, right? We're being fed propaganda, left, right and centre, right? And people don't know what to believe anymore. But you have to delve into it, right, you know? You have to take away the fog that blurs everything because, remember this, Michael, the first casualty in war always is truth, right? And... Um, the, the, like, for instance, right, yes, they were. They were welcomed with open hands. They really were, right? And, uh, like, if you want to check it out, right, there's independent journalists over there, right, you know, and they're reporting on this thing the whole time, right? One in particular, a guy called Paul Lancaster, he has a series of videos up, right? He's absolutely excellent. He's actually an ex-U.S. Uh, um, uh, military person. Uh, his reports from Mariupol and all this region right, are absolutely fantastic. He speaks Russian as well. And um, you, you, you can see it. You can see people living in basements, people lacking medicine, right? The Russians coming in, right, you know, giving them the medicine, right? And this, and that. this man is not a, a, a propagandist, right? This man is showing it directly as it happens. On but the, but the Russians opened emergency corridors in the east, and then they bombed people who tried to use them. That's not no, military that operation. That's war. No, 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 they did not bomb the... No, we're being told they did. No, they didn't. They were actually shelled by the Ukrainian forces. You see, this is the problem, right? So are we being fed misinformation, much as, as all of the Russian public are being denied correct information? Yeah, but you see, we're being denied uh, information as well. You have to ask yourself the question, why are all the Russian news sites and those supporting Russia and those that adhere to, uh, you know, Russia, why are they all banned? Why are they all censored? Why is the European Union, right, put a blanket ban on all of these news sites, right, that would say anything positive about Russia. You see, what I'm actually thinking, right, you know, I don't know who's running the European Union. I'd be quite honest about it. I actually think, right, you know, that uh, what's going on here is that America is running the whole show, even in Europe, right? And, I mean, the way they're loading up um, uh, uh, Ukraine with weapons and everything else, right, this is absolutely crazy. The Ukrainians at the moment are fighting a lost cause, right? I'll be quite honest. Now, where is all the fighting? Okay, my apologies, hold on a second. But hang on a second. If, if, if Russia stops fighting, there's no more war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there's no more Ukraine. Ah, you're wrong there. Yeah, you're wrong there. With regards to the Minsk agreements, right, you know, yes, there is a defined Ukraine, right? There is a defined Ukraine. And that actually did incorporate, that did incorporate the two regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. Right? And the whole Donbass region over there, right? And it's just that they gave them partial autonomy. That's all. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm out of time, but listen, I, Philip, we're a long way from what we started with the Michael Collins statue. Uh, do, do, you think, do you think there'll be statues to Volodymyr Zelensky in, in the fullness of time? Uh, I wouldn't think so, not even by the Ukrainian people. No. All right, fair enough. All right. God bless my Thanks, thank Philip. Thank you. Okay, and uh, if you're wondering why Russia is after Ukraine, here's a text I sent to Neil uh, some months ago. Uh, for those who, who ask, why does Ukraine matter? Well, here's why it matters. It's the second largest country by area in Europe. It has a population of over 40 million. It ranks first in Europe in proven recoverable reserves of uranium ores, second place in Europe and 10th place in the world in terms of titanium ore reserves. Second place in the world in terms of explored reserves of manganese ores, over 2.3 billion tonnes, or 12% of the world's reserves. It's second largest Irish ore, uh, iron ore reserves in the world. It's got 30 billion tonnes of iron ore. Second place in Europe in terms of mercury ore reserves, third and 13th in the world in shale gas reserves, fourth in the world by total value of natural resources. Just let that one sink in. Fourth in the world by the total value of natural resources, seventh in the world 
in coal reserves. And its most important agricultural features, of course, is it's first in Europe in terms of arable land, third in the world by area of black soil. It's got 25% of the world's black soil. First place in the world in exports of sunflower and sunflower oil. Second in the world in barley production. Fourth in barley exports. Third largest producer and fourth largest exporter of corn in the world. Fourth largest producer of potatoes in the world. Fifth largest rye producer in the world. Fifth place in the world in bee production, 75,000 tonnes. Uh, eighth place in the world in wheat exports. Ninth in the world in production of chicken eggs. Sixteenth place in the world in cheese exports. And Ukraine can meet the food needs, wait for it, of 600 million people. 600 million people. And the industrial context, it's first in Europe's ammonia production. Uh, second uh, in, in Europe and fourth in the world uh, with the largest natural gas pipeline system. Third largest in Europe and eighth largest in the world in terms of installed capacity of nuclear power plants. I I can go on and on and on. Uh, Fourth largest exporter of turbines for nuclear power plants in the world. Fourth largest manufacturer of rocket launchers. Uh, The list goes on. But Ukraine matters. That's why uh, its independence is important to the rest of the world. And to me anyway, these resources is why Russia is chomping at the bit to take it. But I thank Philip for that very informed discussion. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Text and WhatsApp 086-8104-106. Cork's Red FM. Nine minutes to 11. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Mick. How's it going? No, I'm very good. You lost your nail kit. Now, this had thousands of euro worth of equipment in it while you were up in Cool Mine Women's Residential Treatment in Limerick. Now, just to explain, Cool Mine is a drug and alcohol treatment centre providing community day and residential services to men and women with uh, problematic substance use uh, and also provide services to their families. Now, you were up there helping to do people's nails, were you? No, I, I was working up there in the women's residential for the weekend and I brought my nail case up there to treat the women because we'd do things like that. We'd have self-care nights. So they're really into beauty and nails and stuff. So I was after bringing my nail case up for the weekend to, to treat the ladies. And when I came home last night, Mick, I parked my car across the road from my house and I removed my case and my overnight bag and a few my luggage and stuff. And by the time I, ca- I came in home to turn off my alarm... I actually closed my door, so it was my own fault. I left the nail case outside my car for a few minutes. Um, but before, by the time I realised that my nail case was outside, it was actually gone. So um, one of the neighbours um, had it on CCTV, but there was a man passing that actually picked it up, and he knocked on a few doors. So, God love him, he was trying to find out who owned it, but he actually went away with the case. Okay, so it wasn't robbed, per se. It was, it was picked up, and, no. and somebody tried to find the owner. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely it wasn't robbed at all. I'd say this man now just didn't want to leave it at the side of the road, basically, you know. Okay, and this has, has massive uh, sentimental as well as monetary value for you, doesn't it? It does, Mick. Like, I'm in recovery myself, and I actually built this case for over the last four years. Every week I was building on the case, like, you know, I was buying bits every week, so the value of this stuff would be a couple of thousand, like, I had everything in it. Um, to do with nails and beauty so it was a very large beauty box and it was full with stock everything I have was in the box you know okay so your 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 dad gave you this box uh, to kind of celebrate your sobriety you'd hit you'd hit a kind of a landmark length of sobriety and he gave you the case yeah my dad bought me the box and I filled it then with all the stock like so even the box itself would be expensive you know um, and, and my father would know that I loved the beauty and the nails for years. 
so I was building on that over the last couple of years. Okay, and, so and you're, you're living in the... In, you're in the Blackpool area, yeah? I am, yeah. Okay, this is a large silver hard case metal box. Is it kind of a flight case, is it? It is. It has four wheels and a handle on it. It looks kind of like a suitcase, but it opens out into a big beauty box. Okay, we'll, we'll put an appeal out for it. Tell me about your own uh, addiction. Uh, was it alcohol addiction, substance abuse? No, I'm in recovery from substance abuse and alcohol. Um, I'm in recovery since 2018, so... Congratulations. Thanks, mate. Um, and the beauty would have been a huge part of my recovery as well, you know. Um, it's just something I loved, and, and it's a good distraction and something positive. Like So it's great that the girls love it as well now in early recovery. Um, so we miss that now over the next couple of weeks, you know. Yeah, and, and the uh, your, your own story, it's, it's got better since 2018, obviously. Uh, how, how bad how bad was it in, in, in your worst moments? Um, well, I lost everything um, because of being in addiction. Like, obviously, I lost everything. I ended up um, I ended up with no home. Um, I ended up with no job, no family around me. Um, people were, I suppose, uh, due to my addiction. Like, people were um, people didn't want to be around me. You know, I, I, I suppose when when you're in that place, like, it's a very lonely place, but it's a horrible place to be. Like, and um, I suppose it was just just an awful place to be at the time. Um, I was homeless and I was very much alone, you know. Um, yeah. But it was all down to my own drug use. And I suppose at that time, like, I just realised um, I didn't feel like there was a way out anyway. Number one, you know, I've gone so far into it. But um, I suppose then I decided, like, that I needed to um, change my life. I knew I was going to die. So um, I started working towards trying to get into recovery and I went into Cool Mine in Dublin. So um, it was actually an old friend of mine um, met me. I met him in town, and he was working for Cool Mine, and they got me up there then. So that's when my life started to change. Like, but up until then, um, yeah, it was horrific. It was a horrible place to be. Now, to be honest with you, and you know? it takes so, some amount of resolve and determination, even to just take that first step and say, you know, enough is enough. Uh, I'm going nowhere but out of this world if I don't stop. Uh, try, try to regroup. Um, try to get my body back in some sort of shape. Try to repair relationships with family and those I've let down. Um, you you made that choice, and and it's been successful since, has it? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm flying out, thank God. And um, I went back to college and educated myself. I did 14 months in um, Cool Mine in Dublin. I did um, nine months residential, and I did six months step down, and then I went back to educate myself. Um, because you'd be completely lost, I suppose, when you come out of recovery, you know. And when you come out of treatment, um, and like I was a hopeless case, to be honest with you, when I went in there, I didn't even know it was going to work, but thank God it did, you know. So um, I just came out and I educated myself. I'm in UCC now at the moment and stuff, and I'm working in the South Right, Rachel, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that the news is coming up and I haven't got to the, uh, you know, we need to describe the case and the situation. We want to get that back for you. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about your personal situation. So can we do that after news at 11? Yeah, perfect. Thanks Brilliant. very much, mate. Thanks, okay, million. thank you. Thanks, Thanks. bye-bye. Uh, it's now coming up to three minutes to 11 on the Neil Prendeville Show with news next. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench, every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. This is The Neil Prendeville Show. Now, I was talking just before the news at 11 to... 
Rachel and uh, right, Ra- Ra- hi. Rachel joins us again on the line. Ra- Rachel, just to recap, and we're going to get back to the loss of your your nail box, which is worth thousands in a moment. But I'm very interested in uh, in your story. You began to tell your story, and I'm very interested. Uh, you kind of mentioned you were a hopeless case before arriving in Cool Mine. Could you take us through the mechanics of what happened, really, when when you made the decision to seek some help? How did the services integrate to help you? Um, well, I suppose I came from a very good family home and I had a great upbringing, but it was just a road that I chose to go down, I suppose, at the time. Um, and the services were absolutely amazing for me. Like back in 2018, when I did decide to, that, I, that I couldn't do it anymore, you know, and I needed help. Um, so I suppose at the time I went into, um, at the time I went into a pre-entry group in Cork in Arbor House. Um, and they, they guided me, basically, they, they gave me a clear pathway into um, Cool Mine Residential. Um, I knew I needed residential, I needed to be removed from society, my life was full of chaos, um, I suppose, at the time, like, so that's what I needed. What's it like um, going, going into residential, from that short, sharp shock, if you like, of the chaos that you're now leaving behind to um, the, you know, the ultimate, I suppose, it's serenity and quietness and calm and order yeah. in a residential setting? I suppose the first feeling I got from going in there, it is overwhelming when you're going up there and you'd be full of fear. But I suppose at the same time, I felt like I, 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 I arrived at a place like where people understood me and where I wasn't judged, you know. And what, what um, about the personal withdrawal symptoms? Were they, were they strong? Were they hard to combat? Extremely difficult. Um, extremely difficult for the first couple of months in, in Ashley House. I went to Ashley House, Cool Mine Women's Residential in Dublin. Um, and I suppose the the first couple of months were extremely difficult. Like I wanted to run many times, you know. Um, I didn't feel like I could do it, but you know, with the support of the staff and my peers, the girls that were there, um, really helped me um, to stay in the program and stick it out. Like you know. <clears throat> yeah. So, so do, you, do you get cravings for the drugs you were addicted to? And I, I know they will reduce oh, uh, the further you're yeah. away from from your last use, but. Uh, it can't be easy when these when these cravings come at you and you've you've got the temptation to run. Yeah, because like I suppose for me, like using drugs was a coping mechanism, and I suppose being up there, being substance free, I went up and I did a three week detox up there, and I suppose after your detox, your feelings and your emotions start to come back. I suppose, and I didn't know what to do because I was so used to just coping whenever I had a feeling or an emotion or something. I'd use it. I'd use drugs. I didn't know how to deal with life itself like you know um, and I found it very difficult that I didn't have a substance to rely on when I was up there but that's where they, the programme came into it then where the counselling and the group therapy and all the one-on-one that they do up there um, you know a lot of key working sessions and there was an awful lot of work put into me up there as a client um, and that's where I started to heal then and where I started to grow and where my thinking started to change Of course the detox um, must come first and that must be harrowing tell me about that the detox is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I went up and I did a methadone detox and it was over a period of three weeks and I don't think I'll ever forget it, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, it was just horrific, withdrawals, pains. Um, but again, thank God I had the support around me. I don't think I would have been able to do it in the community because people have an option also to do it in their community. Um, for me, I would not have been strong enough. Yeah, the temptation would be in the community again. Me- me- methadone will bring you down gradually from heroin addiction, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, you stabilise on your methadone before um, you can go into treatment. So while you're, while you're trying to stabilise on methadone, you reduce your heroin use. 
<clears throat> and then, like, obviously your heroin use comes down and then you're stable on your methadone and that would kind of hold you then, you know. It'll keep the withdrawals at bay and stuff. So then you go into treatment then to, well, I went into Coonline Ashley House to reduce off my methadone, which they do it then over a three-week period because okay. substance-free. And, and, and did some bright sunny morning you wake up and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm after bottoming out. There, there's nowhere now but for me to go back up. I'm coming out of the, the trough. Definitely, yeah. I think like it was after the first couple of months and stuff, and then I started to when I when I started to feel things and I started to build relationships very slowly with good people that I had in my life previous, you know, and family members and stuff. Um, I suppose that gave me more hope as well um, to just kind of keep going, you know, um, and and it gives you it just gives you a bit of hope to work towards something, I suppose, as well. And it wasn't an option for me to go back. Like I said, like I, I knew I was going to die. It wasn't an option. Like my head was completely gone. My life was in chaos. Um, and, you know, like I said, like I would have been a very chaotic user. I would have caused a lot of trouble while I was in my addiction, you know. Um, so I suppose like to try and leave all that behind me was, um, was a challenge. Yeah. And is it the fact that you're not essentially in prison, that you can actually walk? That you have to build up your reserve to say, I'm going to get these temptations to walk and go back. It's going to be the, ultimately the worst thing I could do. So I'm going to have to brave through these cravings and addictions and, and, and stay and stay with the people who are helping me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is like, it's like, it's a, you have two choices, I suppose. It's either go back and, and die and end up in jails, institutions are dead um, or change your life. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard road, but it's, I wouldn't swap it for the world, you know, like, you know. My whole life has changed, um, you know, and looking back now, like, um, sometimes it feels like it wasn't even me. You know, sometimes I look back and I feel like, I don't know, it's just like an outer body experience, like. Um, but yeah, like, I have a lot, of, a lot of stuff in my life today, like, that I'm very grateful for, like, and I wouldn't swap it for the world. Yeah, so, so, so the, the relationships, if you like, that your addictions damaged uh, were allowed by the, those who were damaged to be repaired because they love you. Uh, do you now value those relationships more than you do you think you did at the start? Oh, most definitely. Um, and it's all the simple things that I love today, like, you know, even just the family time, spending time with my niece and nephew, my son. Um, it's all, that's what matters to me today, like, you know. Um, and, like, it's, it's just finding a new love again, like, um, a love for yourself, I suppose, as well, and just trying to live a good life, you know. Um, I feel like I got a second chance at life, like, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So you're very proud of yourself now? I am today. You know, yeah, it was a hard road, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Now, now to get back to the story and the reason you rang us, and thank you for being so open and brave and in discussing your, your, your fight back for normality and sobriety. Uh, but you, no. you, you were now giving, giving a little back. You were going up to Coolmine uh, Women's Residential Treatment Centre in Limerick, doing a little bit of work there, day in residential services. And for the ladies, you were doing... Uh, doing nails because that personal care and that personal enhancement, if you like, is is central to their uh, rebuilding of their own self worth. And and f- for ladies especially, uh, nails they're a big thing. Nails and lashes. Yeah, yeah, and it brightens up their week. Like they look forward to it, you know, because it's tough up there with all the group work during the week. So at the weekends we try and do stuff that they like to do. We're trying to help them find new hobbies and new interests and stuff. And I suppose you really let yourself go when you're in addiction, obviously, and just to find that little bit of self-care again and a bit of self-worth and a bit of self-love. Like, they love it, like. So, um, yeah, like, so so I, br- I bring up my nail stuff. Um, I'm working in the Cork, um, cool mine part-time, and then I'm just doing a few hours then up in the Limerick Residential because they're only open a couple of weeks, like I was saying. 
but I absolutely love it. Like, and, and to even when I brought up the nail case, their faces laid up like they, you know, we love it. Like, and they even wanted me to show them how to do nails and stuff. So we had planned to do this over the coming weeks with them um, on the weekend to give them something to look forward to. And a few of them were even thinking that they're going to go into the beauty business when they get out and they finish their treatment. So it was great to see that bit of hope in them and give them something positive to focus on, you know. And it's, it's not um, just somebody volunteering to do their nails, I guess. Uh, it's someone they can chat to while their nails are being done who's, who's been through the process, through the system. Yeah. And we do have chats and stuff like that. Like, So it's great that they can get a bit of hope as well because the same was done for me when I was in... When I was in residential, I would have looked up to a lot of women that were further on in the programme or women that would have came in and done voluntary work or would have helped out. Um, even staff there and stuff, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for all their support. So that's what I was hoping to give the girls as well, you know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you can change our life, you know. So when, when did you volunteer to, to go back and, and help out in the, in the Cool Mind Centres? And when did they accept you? When did, did they know you were ready to be accepted? Yeah, I, I would have done, like, I would have done an awful lot of work on myself, to be honest with you, Mick. Like, it's not a case, like, you come out of treatment and you're cured. Um, I'm still doing counselling ongoing for the last four years. Um, I do a lot of inner work. I would have done, I'm in a 12-step fellowship. Um, I'm, I'm constantly doing work on myself, and I know that needs to be done for me to progress, I suppose, in life. Um, so, I suppose, after two years of sobriety, um, I was offered a position in, you know, uh, I suppose, um, Cool Mine came to Cork. They branched down to the southern region and I actually went up to set up a graduate group because if you go through Cool Mine, you can be part of a lifelong graduate group. So it doesn't matter how long you're in recovery, you will always have this group to come to if you have any issues with life or if you need any support, we'll always be there. So I went up to volunteer to set up that group and I suppose I had a good chat with the team leader up there and um, they actually offered me a part-time position as claim coordinator for North City and South City Cork. So um, it took off from there then. And then I suppose I, I would know a lot of the staff and going through the programme myself over the last couple of years. So then when they opened up the women's residential, um, yeah, I, I got a position up there on the weekends and stuff. So I love it. Fantastic. And all was going well until last night when your alarm was going off in your house. You live in the Blackpool area. And yeah. uh, you put down your things, went in, inadvertently closed the door, and the nail case, which I believe was a present from your father to celebrate your sobriety, uh, yeah. was taken by somebody. But it doesn't look like they stole it because on CCTV they were going around knocking on doors trying to find its owner. And now you're hoping to get it back. Yeah, I really am. Um, it took me a very long time to build it back up again, to be honest with you, and a lot of money. So. Um, I suppose I um, like I said he wasn't trying to to rob it or anything but the man did knock you could see him clearly on the CCTV and um, but he walked away with the case so I suppose I rang the guards to see if it was handed in and um, I rang the guards in Mayfield it wasn't handed in I ring Blackpool there now again in a minute just to see hopefully he might um, pass it in you know yeah so it, it, it looks like a good Samaritan who couldn't find the owner of the case and yeah. you, you would think then the next step would be handed in to the local guard station. But if anyone's listening or anyone comes across, it's a silver flight case um, yeah. containing what's essentially thousands of euros worth of your nail technician equipment. Uh, yeah. And it's been used to help uh, and it's been of great help in helping other uh, members of the programme through. So it's uh, we're getting loads of texts, by the way, to say what a wonderful person you are. Oh, thank you very much. What a fantastic lady, Mick. <laughs> uh, and, and, and three cheers for that big-hearted girl who's so brave to come on the radio and tell, and I hope she finds her case, and all that kind of stuff coming in 
uh, on the text machine. Uh, so it's a silver flight case, hard case, beauty box. You've been building the contents of the box up for years. It's of massive sentimental value because your dad yeah. bought it for you to mark your sobriety and your continuing success in, in staying straight, yeah. I suppose. Uh, Blackpool area. Uh, it's uh, an older man with darker hair, darker long hair, I think, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, who was accompanied by what looked like a younger man, so maybe his son. Uh, so if, if, if they're listening, we can uh, return the, the case to its rightful owner. Um, and uh, I'm sure she'd love to meet you. But the easiest thing would be maybe to hand it into Mayfield or Blackpool Garda Station and uh, they can reconnect you with it. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say? It's, it's, what happens if you don't get it? It's going to be very difficult for you to continue, is it? I don't know, to be honest, Sister Mick, I was so upset over it and I said, I know it's only a nail case, but it just meant so much to us, you know. Um, so I just have to start from scratch again, I suppose. It could be a lot worse, like, I just have to get up and get on with it now, like, you know. Well, let's hope that the power of live radio will help you yeah. to uh, to get the case back. And we thank you for using live radio to, to help so many people. Uh, there are lots of people listening, I think, who will take great solace and take great comfort and great support uh, from your brave expression of your own journey. So thank you very much. Thanks very much for giving me the time, Mick. All the best, Rachel. Thanks very okay. much. Hopefully we'll have a happy ending on that one before the end of the programme. Uh, there's a course helping with addiction as well. Rethink Ireland are celebrating the expansion of socially inclusive sports organisations. One of them is a Cork-based organisation. It is called Sailing Into Wellness. And they provide sailing courses for people with addiction and with mental health issues. And to tell us all about it, Colin, Colin Healy joins me on line three. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Mick. How are you? Very good. Sailing into wellness. You don't, you're preaching to the converted here now. I find sailing makes me feel very well. Excellent, yeah. Well, funnily enough, we, we're, we're an educational and therapeutic program, and, and one of the groups, the organizations we work with from the very beginning is Cool Mine. And we started in Dublin with them, and we run day programs and, uh, and voyages of recovery. So we, we have a great relationship with Cool Mine. And like that, that girl was speaking about, you know, it's, you know, she hasn't let addiction define her, and that's what we try to teach people, that addiction doesn't have to define you, nor does mental health, or any of the other problems that we work with, you know? Yeah. Are, so are, are with, you, you began this organisation, I believe, because of your own personal struggles. You had problems in certain areas, maybe mental health issues? Yeah, I, 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 I battled with addiction and, and poor mental health for about 20 years, and, uh, you know, that's just part of my life story, and that's a big thing for us, is, is you know, I've you know, like we, you can use your your life story to, to actually as a, come come from a position of strength and instead of seeing it as a weakness. You know, so if you can get through this, you can get through most things. You know, like fear and vulnerability are the the two crippling things in in, in early recovery or in or in addiction or and in in, in poor mental health. And and when you can uh, get people out in the water, it's it kind of it's helping them to overcome fears and help and you know working as a team and and, and you know. Communication skills, problem solving, everything that sailing brings, it, it it just all marries together very well, and just helps people in their on their journey. You know, we're we're just a part of people's recovery process, and we you know we're we're a, we collaborate with a lot of organisations right around the country now to, to deliver these programs. Okay, so sailing into wellness is is your program. Tell me about it. How do people qualify? How do they get involved? Well, we work with community groups and organisations. So, for example, in Cork, we would work with Churchill Community Trust. We would work with the Life Centre, Cork Alliance. We'd work with families with autism, you know, with children and young people with autism. So, with community organisations, we work with primarily. So, we work with Cool Mine in Cork as well. Um, and it's, 
we work with organisations as opposed to individuals, and we, so they're, they're bringing groups to us that would that would uh, benefit from the programme. So it's a kind of, it's interacting with their programmes. And how, in particular, do you find sailing helps help them? And is it a uh, from a beginner to advanced, or is it just a sailing experience you offer? So it's experiential learning, right? So if you think about it, you're coming from a, a background where your life is in chaos, and chaos. You know, you're you're not going to get anywhere unless you can you can get to a certain level of calmness or of you know. And we we help people just to uh, use the sailing as a stepping stone to develop the soft skills that they might have left lost in 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 addiction or in poor mental health. And the, and we use a therapeutic model called CRA, Community Reinforcement Approach. And by by it's a very light touch program and, and what happens is like all the things I spoke about said there like the the uh, teamwork the the problem solving communication skills they're all part of it and it and it, it comes together nicely and we're able to help people in their journey yeah and I suppose sailing sailing is not without its accidents either so if uh, let's say a boat should capsize they'll need to know what to do as well won't they as a team yeah well we don't actually we don't operate with boats that capsize so oh, right. we yeah, so we use boats called Hawk Twenties, one of the smaller boats, and we would uh, there we'd have we'd have our instructor and four participants and, and a group leader on each one. We have two of those, and we bring those to different locations around the country. For example, we just finished a program in Greystones. We're in Carlingford this week for a month, and then and we operate out of Kinsale uh, permanently. That's our permanent base. So, and then we we have a progression program, so we bring people from a day sailing program. Right through up to, uh, we have a we are very lucky to collaborate with an organisation called uh, the Island Marine School, and they have a ship called the Ellen, and it was rebuilt there in Cork. That's right, it was rebuilt in Liam Hegarty's yard in uh, in yeah. Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. So we are very lucky to be the primary operators of that of that boat now from from the from the community aspect, working with community groups. So we we use that. So, for example, it's it, the progression. We're trying to get people. Like that girl that was speaking to you there. Uh, like we've got a guy Owen who's starting. He's he was he's three years now uh, around uh, in recovery. He came to an organisation in Dublin. He started sailing with us, and now he's training to become an instructor with us. Wow, that's Owen Barnes, is it? Yeah, Owen. Yeah. yeah. Owen, good morning. Good morning, sir. Say hello to Colin. Hi, Colin. Morning, Owen. <laughs> Good uh, to hear you again. No, Owen, you, you sound very confident. Anyway, you're a 44-year-old from South Inner Dublin. You've had ongoing drug, alcohol and addiction issues for many years of your life. 26 yes, years of your years. life. And then you came sure. across the Sailing into Wellness program about two or three years ago. Yes. T- tell us your story. <clears throat> so my story is that I grew up in Dunleary here and I've made a lot of bad choices over the years. <clears throat> And I'd gone into drug and alcohol and <clears throat> 26 years basically has been carnage. But I was giving myself an opportunity to grow in recovery and I was given a chance <clears throat> to go sailing, which sailing seems to be basically... Um, well, would that have it's seen, not for my kind of people, yeah, basically. I, I was going to say, you know, from where you were coming from, would you have perceived sailing as a sort of an elitist activity? <laughs> Yeah, I would have looked at it as, you know, being people that snobby or people from money class. I come from Dunleary, but I didn't come from sailing clubs. You know, that's so, in every um, sport, though. That's in golf. That's in rugby. That's in that's in everything. everything. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh yeah, just not being given a chance to be underwater, you know. So um, what, what I'd really like to get to here, on is if you could speak from your heart about maybe coming from the chaos of your life yes. to what is essentially, and the Ilan is a beautifully wooden crafted vessel. Uh, what, what was your first trip? I, I'll never forget the first time that wind filled a sail for me when I was about eight or nine or something. It's just magical. Right. So could you describe that? So just over two years, we first left for a voyage down the River Liffey. We were going out towards Dalkey. We had set sail under. <clears throat> and it's just a moment of just sitting up on top of the hill, coming from that chaos and just being connected with yourself and not understanding but you have a bit of peace not listening to the chaos around family I'm not listening to my mind you know and just being there like minded people and being able to take orders and directions from the captain or the skipper or Colin and you know that that model that they they, they approach that CRA model you know that community reinforcement approach uh, and is is that sort of look, guys? I'm the captain. I'm going to have to give you orders. There, there are orders that will benefit the vessel. Yeah. They'll benefit our journey. They'll benefit us as a crew. Uh, you know, I'm not telling you what and to do for any other reason than we need. We comfort. need to be a crew to to sail this vessel. Yeah. And when we all come together, it was magical, and we could see the boat come faster, and we were leaning into the wind, and we we're standing up at the top of the vessel. And it was just a magical moment. Fabulous. I remember directly coming in that day and saying to Colin that is there an opportunity for me to come back here and he looked at me and was like right you know yeah he would with me give me a number you know and I've got many opportunities to go out with him over the years and we're just coming back from Carlingford Lock there we were out there sailing boats from Greystones and you know I've got an opportunity to go forward walking with the charity okay so you're it's amazing you're, you're going to become an SIW, a sailing into wellness instructor now, and you're going to pass and pay forward what you've learned, not not just about sailing and about uh, removing yourself from the chaos, uh, but yes. because you've navigated, uh, pardon the pun, the pathway out of the chaos. Yes, and sailing has really, really helped me in that. I'm not used to it, but it's it's good, you know. Okay, so you're you're. You're on the course now, so we thank you for making yourself available for for this interview. You're taking a tea break, uh, so uh, what, what's what, what's the course like? Is it fulfilling in itself? Yeah, look, it, 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 it's very strict and demanding. You know, I've got to take in information. I've got to learn things. You know, I'm not used to that bit of problem solving where I've come from, but just slowly taking orders from the team with Colin and Tess. You know, they, they've helped me build up that confidence that I can achieve anything today, you know, going forward, you know. Well, you're talking on live radio now. Imagine imagine thinking that three years ago from the chaos, that you'd be yeah. sailing, becoming no. an instructor, talking on radio, and, and paying forward to other people to help them. That must feel great. And being there to help other people that's going behind me. It's amazing. Someone someone gave me a second chance, which Colin's the insult with an opportunity in me, you know, and I'm very, very grateful that I'll stand there you know, and say that. And it's just nice to be there for other people coming through. Colin, from where you started, that sort of validation coming from Owen Barnes there, that must make you feel great. Yeah, well, it's, look, it's a team effort here with us, you know. Like, even today, we're down here with Rethink Ireland. Um, you know, 
without their help, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't be here today, you know, um, through the Sports Impact Programme that they that they set out, and this is the completion of it today, we're getting the team out down here today, and, you know, there's there's so many different, um, you know, there's it's such a, a big team effort here to get, you know, programmes on the water, to boat, keep the boats maintaining, you know, working with the different types of groups and organisations we work with, it's a huge team effort, with myself, James, Tess, you know, only Connor, Seb, everyone that's involved. And, you know, for me personally, it's, uh, I take huge pride in, in, in seeing Owen and others that are coming through now, you know, and we've got some funding through the ETB, through um, Irish Sailing, through Sport Ireland to, to help train these guys and bring them through and create opportunities, careers for them, you know, and show them that, you know, again, I go back to it, like, they're, no one should be defined by their mistakes, by their past. And they shouldn't let it happen, you know. And it's it's up to us, us and people that have been through the mail, the ring, or ourselves to show them that there's a way forward. And that's what that's what sailing into wellness does. Yeah, you know, it's as simple as that. Well, you've both opened the door now to people who might be listening who who say or might think, "I'm going to do that. I'd love to do that." At what point in the addiction cycle, if you like, uh, can you accept people? Do they have to be clean and and trying hard for a certain amount of time, or can they still be in recovery? Nick, we're working with organizations around the country from day programs that, that have lads in stabilization programs that are on methadone. We're working with guys coming out of prison. Guys and girls, we ran a program in, with Cool Mine in Limerick with the ladies in Cool Mine and it was on Dark and it would blow you away, the, the, the reaction and, and the feedback and, and the, the, what they got out of it, you know, and we're going to do a, a liveaboard voyage with those girls on the island in, out of Dublin or out of Cork fairly soon as well, you know, so we, we you know, it doesn't matter where they're where they're at in their journey. You know, we work with the organisations, we work with their their caseworkers, and see where people are at, and see, yeah, look, he's he's struggling or she's struggling, but I think this would be good for him. So, we, you know, we don't, it's it's not about where they are in their journey; it's where they are with themselves. You know, it's about commitment. They have to, you know, if it, people need routine as well, and they need to, and 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 just getting them to commit to doing something like this, it's a huge leap of faith. Fear pays a huge part of it vulnerability and that's what we try to teach them they can feel you can feel vulnerable on the water but you can feel safe because you trust the boat you trust our team whereas in life the vulnerability feel, being vulnerable through addiction or through mental health people can take advantage of that uh-huh. people they feel they can be taken advantage of so we just give them a kind of a safe space to learn new skills to express themselves you know Fantastic. It's, it's, it's something I wouldn't have put together, that, that sailing could be so, as much as I love it, could be so therapeutic for those uh, on the journey towards sobriety, recovery and, 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 and fuller lives. And, and I, I salute your efforts in that regard uh, right across the board. And well done, Owen Barnes, for the steps you've taken. Uh, and may, may, may there be many happy sailing miles ahead of you. Yes. We'll have to get you out with us, Mick, one of the days. Well, so when, you're, uh, when Wellie can sail, I'll drop down 100%. I saw the Illin actually anchored there over maybe a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where, where can people see that fine vessel sailing these days? Well, she's, gonna, she'll be out of, she's going to be doing um, today, she'll be in Kinsale. Next week, she's going to Limerick, and she's doing a sail training Ireland voyage out of Limerick up to Dublin. But she'll be back in Kinsale for, for uh, programs later again in the summer. Fantastic. All right, once again, uh, entry to the programme. Where can people get more information, Colin? Uh, sailingintowellness.ie and uh, they get people involved with local community organisations, north side, south side of Cork, just, and they can, we work with a lot of organisations so they can find out through them as well. Okay. And Owen Barnes, to you, sir, fair winds and following seas.
Thank you very much. Thank All the best, guys. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Morning. Bye-bye. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818-104-106. Red FM. 22 and a half minutes to midday. Sabrina's on line one. Good morning, Sabrina. Morning, Neil. How are you? It's Mick, but not to worry. Uh, I, you're a oh, beauty. Mick, sorry, Mick. <laughs> you're a beauty therapist as well. You're also in recovery. Uh, you're sober six years. You're based in the Yall area. Uh, so you you were also on this very very precarious path of addiction. Can you tell me about that from the start? Yes. Yeah. It was very very difficult. I suppose like with this disease, alcoholism, um, it's a disease that will tell you you don't have it. So I continued to drink and drink and drink and my life became chaotic. Um, I tried numerous times to go into recovery, but it told me in my head that no, you don't have a disease, you're not, you're not an alcoholic. So I went in and out and in and out for a long time, over 10 years, I would say, Mick. And um, it was just like, you know, a chaotic journey in my life. Just started falling apart. Um, I started losing family and friends. I had a very successful business in the beautiful town of Lismore, a beauty salon, and I lost that through my alcoholism. And, you know, I don't have shame in kind of saying that today because I'm in recovery today and I can see why I lost it. And today my life has totally and utterly transformed. My family are back in my life. I have some amazing friends through the fellowship. And I've managed to, you know, open up a business again, which is like I'm very, very proud of. And it's going really well. And I don't have to be, um, I suppose, waking up in the mornings with that fear and anxiety that I used to feel after drink because I wouldn't remember what I'd done the night before. I'd have blackouts and a lot of alcoholics would would, um, understand blackouts and it's, it's a horrible place, you know, it's just, alcoholism just took over my life. It just mm. literally took everything from me. Not, not, and not, not to mention what it's doing physically to your body, of course. You're in complete denial that you're an alcoholic, even though you were drinking yourself to oblivion. Yes, and I just couldn't stop. It just, you know, even though, like, I knew what I was doing to myself, I could not stop. I found it very, very difficult to stop. Um, like, near the end, like, I knew I was alcoholic, um, but still... I still went and picked up that drink and kept drinking and drinking and drinking, even though I knew the chaos it was causing around me, physically what it was doing to my body, mentally even what it was doing to me. Like mentally, like is so was so bad, like because the brain was just like going and the mind was going, and I hated myself, um, and I even hated myself more then for not being able to stop drinking, and it was a very 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 difficult journey. And but the what, what was thing, what was the low point, Sabrina? When, when did you decide? Okay, enough is enough. Well, what happened actually was I like like most alcoholics, like we just kind of come up with these crazy plans and crazy ideas. And my plan was that I was going moving to Gran Canaria, so I packed up all my bags and everything, and off I went to Gran Canaria because I previously had lived there before for three months in active drinking so like it was easy to kind of drink out there because it's it's a wash with cheap alcohol totally and everybody was doing it so like I wasn't being pinpointed as an alcoholic out there because everybody else was drinking so like it was like kind of the culture to drink out there so I decided I was going to move out there and packed all my bags off I went and like within two days of being out there 
I had just totally and utterly caused so much chaos, so much, you know, destruction to myself and everything like that. That was the point that I realised that if I don't get back out of this country on a plane, that I'm going to be coming home in a coffin. And I knew that from the bottom of my heart, like, that I was going to come home in a coffin. And that, for me, was the awakening point. So I booked a flight. I came back home and I went straight back into AA and... Thank God, one day at a time, I haven't picked up a drink since. Is it still one um, day at a time, though, for, for people in your position? One day at a time. We live it one day at a time because um, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what the next hour is going to bring. And this disease is always there. It's always, you know, it's always there. And if we just pick up one drink... Yeah, so I'm just going to ask, do, do you realise... Uh, is it part of the day-to-day fight to go one day at a time that you're just one drink away? The first drink is all it's going to take and, and everything yes. you've worked for is over again. It's over again because once you take that first drink, it sets off that chemical imbalance in your brain and just that one drink will lead to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth and that's where it leads to. So we, it's always the first drink. It's not the second or third drink you drink, it's the first drink you pick up because the first drink you pick up you won't be able to put it down again. And is there, is there ever a temptation to think, you know, I'm cured now. I'm grand. I'll be able to drink moderately and responsibly now. Is there that no. in, your, in your head ever? You know that it's it's going to be fatal if you go back. It's fa- I know it's fatal if I go back. I know if I pick up a drink today, I will never get back. You know, I know in my heart today if I pick up that drink that there's no coming back for me. And I've learned that from... You know, from people who have gone back out there and who have picked up a drink and who have died. And I have been to many a funeral of alcoholics who have picked up a drink and died. And I can I can see all that around me. And it's so much destruction for the family members of that person that goes back out and picks up a drink. Because nobody can stop you. It's only you that can stop you know, you can go into the you can go into the rooms like for your mother, your brother, your sister, your partner, but it won't work. Like it's you. You have to be mm-hmm. the one who wants to win and get you well and get you better. Yeah, I, I read a book a number of years ago about the life of George Best, and uh, there was one telling line in it that I, you know I can never forget. And um, it, it really was the sad and tragic case of somebody who couldn't stop. Uh, but that line was uh, alcohol. Once the lubricant of success became the refuge from failure. Yes, yeah, very, very true. So you now have repaired relations with those you hurt, and that's obviously very valuable in your recovery now as well. Oh, so, so important. Like, yeah, it's great. Like, do you know what I mean? I have a great relationship with my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, the nephews. Um, you know, we're all, myself and my sister and my two nephews, we're heading off to Tramor on um, Friday. I'm taking the day off and I can do those things today. And my sister can come away with me today and know that, like, it's not going to end up like in a mad, crazy night. Yeah. Because I won't be drinking. So, like, today my life is just so, so different. Like, And if, if Sabrina, people wanted to take the first step, let's say there's somebody out there who's in the throes of alcohol addiction and say... I wouldn't mind going to that girl's nail salon and having a chat, maybe getting my nails done. How can they find you? Um, well, I'm in Yall. I'm based in Yall. So I have a beauty room in Yall. It's called um, Sabrina's Beauty Room. Um, so I'm there now, like, I suppose, to September before COVID. 
but like also like if people are looking for help like you just google like AA helpline and there's a phone number there that um, you can ring and no matter what area of the country you're in you'll always be put in touch with somebody in your locality and what happens from there then is that person will ask you to go would you like to go to a meeting and they'll meet you and they'll bring you to a meeting and kind of journey kind of goes from there like you know we're all there to help each other because I've been where that person at the moment is out there saying I really need to stop drinking and I can't I've been in that position and all I could say like is to anybody out there struggling with alcoholism at the moment like you know there is help out there and no case is hopeless we all felt that when we went into A first that there, like you know we were hopeless cases but no case is hopeless like there is there is help out there, like. And you were listening. Um, to, you were listening to Rachel's story. Have you come across Rachel personally through overlapping in the programs? And do you know her? No, I don't know her at all. Actually, no, no. But um, because you have a very generous, like, you have a very generous offer you're about to make to her, and I just wondered, yes. did you know her? Uh, no, I don't know her at all. No. Okay. Well, you have a nail lamp and varnish that you can give to Rachel because you know what it's like. We've also had a text from Derek Bly. He's the builder uh, that we had on at the very start of the programme. And Derek, with a big heart, says that he'll donate €100 Euro towards a new case for that girl if she doesn't recover it. And I think we're, we probably will get more offers if, if she doesn't get it back over the next few days. And we'll build her a bigger and better one. This one, of course, has sentimental value because her dad gave it to her to celebrate her sobriety. But very generous of you. A nail lamp and varnish you can give Rachel uh, because you know what it's like, um, you know, this yeah. void that's going to be in her life now without this equipment. Mm -hmm, exactly, yeah, because, like, it helps you with your recovery and your passion for your work. It really helps you. And even that, even those, having chats with, like, people and the fact what she's doing, she's going up there, you know, to the people in recovery and having the chats, and she's actually with those um, people that are like at the early stages of their recovery like Rachel's like helping them so so much just by listening and even just by being able to give them just that little bit of advice and help them through it because she's been where they are so it's like so so important like for Rachel to, be able to continue her work of what she's doing like so well, we, we, We'll try and help her as well we're putting an appeal out there if she doesn't get it back in the next 24-48 hours let's see if we can put the full kit back together for her anyone in the nail a technician, industry, or business that like, or maybe in the, even in the wholesale side, that would like to donate something uh, to uh, underpin Rachel's good work and uh, and yours, Sabrina, as well, needs to be recognised. But Rachel is now particularly without her equipment, and we'd like to make that good if we can. But thank you very much for your bravery in coming on, uh, and for your generosity in, in uh, offering the nail lamp and the varnish to Rachel, and for all the good work you continue to do. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a million. Thank Cheers. Bye-bye. I got engaged at Elton John. Not me. Our next caller. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. Nine minutes to 12. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Oh, congratulations. You were at Elton John on Friday, like so many others. Um, but uh, in particular, when your favourite song came on, tell us what happened. Yeah. So um, we were at Elton John and we actually had really good seats. So it's kind of different um, with the concert. They had kind of seating up by the stage and then the standing behind it. So just as the kind of um, end of the concert was, everyone was up dancing and everything to kind of a few of his uh, most famous songs. And then like he sang your song, it's my favourite. So the minute they came on, first of all anyway, because I, I started crying straight away. And we were there, I was dancing around and I kind of looked behind and I saw Mark and my partner was fiancé now. <laughs> I've been trying to be talking, I was like, 
no, no, no. I turned around again, and next time I looked around, and he was down on one knee. Wow. So I popped out the ring, asked me to marry him there in front of everyone. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but as you can imagine, a complete and utter blur to us both. So after, someone actually did come up to me, and she had videoed my reaction. So we actually have a video of me, my reaction, big, dramatic crying and saying yes and stuff. But we didn't actually get the start of it. And you could see in the video, there was a lot of people taking a lot of videos and photos. So we're just kind of sitting out in the field to see if anyone's got um, anything for the special moment so we can see were, were, you, were you the only ones, do you think, that got, that got engaged? Was there more than one? I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> was, there, was there other people? Okay, so if you were at Elton John, you were in the front seats uh, near the stage. Uh, did, Elton, yeah. did Elton spot the, what was going on at all, no? No, I don't think so, no, unfortunately. <laughs> but if, if you were there and you have footage, please get in touch and we'll put you in touch with Emma because she'd like to get some video or photos from the special moment. What's himself's name? So he's, it's Martin. Martin. And when is the, uh, have you discussed the timing of the nuptials or anything? Well, yeah, well, I want to get on things straight away. So hoping the summer of 2024. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, well done. Yeah. Engaged Emma and Martin at Elton John yeah. on Friday night. Is there any particular song we might play for you to kind of play out kind of thing? I well, wonder. definitely, Elton's Elton song, your song, because it's ours now, I suppose. All right, okay. Th th thanks a million, the Neil Prendival Show. Thanks, Emma. Neil Prendival Thank Show, you. produced Thank today by me. Claire O'Connor, by Kevin Galvin, and by Seamus Wheelahan. And we're going to let Elton play us all the way to news. For Emma and Martin, every success in your married life to come. For you, Elton John. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside this is another Red FM podcast. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, for more podcasts, check out redextra.ie. It's full of great Red FM content.